welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 65 for November 2016. I am your co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Uh, <laughs> this is a bad year. Just a really bad year, I think. Um, but, you know, unless you're an Apple II fan, there's been a lot of great stuff happening with that, and uh, mm. I'm sure that people would rather talk about or listen to us talk about that than hear me complain about all the awful things that I think happen. So <laughs> uh, why don't we just move right on? How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so you know those apps where you can like record a sound and it makes like a synthesizer keyboard out of it and plays it at all, all different pitches and stuff? Yeah, like like fart um, sounds over different yeah, octaves and things. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, sure. I'm gonna make one. Of, I'm 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 gonna get one of those and make the Mike McGinnis side <laughs> keyboard. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think our previous co-host Ken might have a nice library of of just that waiting for you if you ask. Ah, <laughs> sweet. There's a secret Mike side library. Okay. Ah. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's been good here. Uh, not a ton of retro stuff going on here. I've been very busy at work. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I occasionally come into the uh, spare bedroom and look longingly at my Apple II <laughs> and uh, wish that I had uh, time. I did actually, uh, I was on an airplane recently and I uh, managed to spend some time in Virtual 2 uh, working on a uh, side project that I'm hoping to show at uh, K-Fest next year, if uh, if not sooner. But uh, let's be realistic, I probably won't get it done before then. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, playing with some, uh, graphics stuff. So hopefully I'll have something interesting to show. Eight or nine months from now. That's, that's playing the long game. <laughs> yeah. That's about how long it takes me to get an Apple II thing done just cause <laughs> you know, an hour here, an hour there. So I actually like having a long flight cause I get to sit down and like have three hours to work on something or whatever. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. And I, I guess, I guess we can't. I can't be too mad at you because I'm sure that this doesn't exactly pay that well. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I found that Apple II software development just doesn't pay what it used to. Shocking! I just I, don't get yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know why that is. What's wrong you know, with these people? I keep, I keep putting products out there, and just people aren't buying it. I don't know. Maybe it's my marketing is the problem. <laughs> I don't know. You need to hire a PR firm, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should spend a bunch of money on that and see how that. That I feel like that'll work. So, <laughs> uh, what about you? What's going on with you? Um, it's been, uh, pretty quiet here. Uh, I'm just, uh, doing the work thing. And, um, I, uh, we recently moved to a smaller storage unit, which is both good and bad because it forced me to, to drag out, um, all of my old Apple threes. And I've been playing with those and, um, um, have been met with varying levels of success. Some of them are, are more curmudgeonly and, and Mike like than others and refuse <laughs> to work. And, but yeah, overall it's been fun and, and going through a box and remembering, oh, I have that. And uh, in fact, I I found my old uh, my old original copy of Geos in um, in, mm. in a box that I thought I had gotten rid of, and, and the uh, even has the the uh, copy protection dongle still in the back in the uh, bubble wrap. Oh, very cool. So did, now, did did you say you were moving all of your stuff to a smaller storage unit, or do you also live in this storage unit? Because your phrasing was a little ambiguous there. <laughs> well, c- considering how much I've spent on retro stuff, um, my wife has just gone ahead and moved me into the storage unit mm-hmm. yeah sounds wise she said by now my collection's worth more than i am so it should be here in the house and i get the storage unit oh <laughs> <laughs> 
You just made a big pile of Apple threes and you just roll around in it. Well, I just turn them on and it keeps me warm through the winter. You know? <laughs> it would. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Occasionally you, you drop one of them just to keep That's them going. Right, yep. <laughs> yeah. I know how it works. Reese's chips. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, I saw on Facebook something happened to your, or on Twitter, I guess, something happened to your uh, scanner. Yeah, finally gave up the ghost. Um, it had been creaking along for a while now, um, which is going to force me to spend money that I don't want to. But um, I, I, I went and looked in the, this is one of those scanners that has a, the little um, control panel where you can go and see how many scans it's done since you last turned it on in its lifetime. And it's, it's well up over 100,000 scans. So probably time to let it go. Wow. Yeah, well, that's no doubt due to Apple2Scans.net, your uh, Apple2 scanning site, yes? Plug, 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 yes. (laughs) (laughs) Seamless segue. Ah, we are so good. So good, and then we keep calling attention to them. Uh, (laughs) So uh, anything else going on, Mike? You got something in the notes here about uh, Mike Whalum's interview? Oh, yeah. I almost forgot about that. Um, Mike Whalen, when he was at Kansas Fest uh, this year, uh, went around and, and made an, uh, a series of recordings of, of the denizens of the hallways at, at night and things like that and, and edited it together very nicely. It, it turned out really great. I think it originally aired on Floppy Days, but uh, um, because Floppy Days is limited in bandwidth, Mike is um, – well, we, we provide, I guess – a venue for better quality sound experience because we're not limited that way. So he offered it to us to broadcast as well. And so I think we're going to release that as like a, a 0.5 show um, not because, you know, our, our shows are like six hours long anyway, and we didn't really need to append that on. But um, And because his recording is in stereo and ours is in mono and they don't really mix that well. So, But look for that around the same time that this releases. Thank you, Mike. Cool. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that we are the Apple II podcast and k is the Apple II conference. Right. So, you know, it seems only fair that we should cover it. Uh, but yeah, having uh, actually already listened to it and um, uh, spoken in it, uh, actually, uh, it is it is a really great listen. Uh, Mike's production values are awesome. And uh, it's got a real uh, sort of NPR kind of feel. He does a uh, a great um, man on the street kind of, uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, definitely a fun listen. All right. Well, is that enough ado? Should we go into our interview? Yeah, I'm sure they're sick of me by now. So uh, let's go to the interview. Hi, this is Al Lowe, and you're listening to Open Apple. So with us on the show today is Alex Lee of of the uh, website, What is the Apple 2GS? Hey, Alex, how you doing? Hi, guys. I'm doing hey, very well. Thank you. Nice to have you on the show. Very nice to be here. <laughs> so uh, let me just open with uh, with a personal thank you. Uh, back when uh, I got back into uh, retro computing uh, a couple of years ago, it was actually your site that did it. Uh, you know, oh, I was wow. A- <laughs> yeah, I was a huge Apple IIGS person, uh, and uh, it was kind of the, it's probably my favorite computer that I've ever owned. Uh, well, not probably. It was definitely my favorite computer that I ever owned, <laughs> And uh, but I hadn't thought about it in, you know, 20 years. And uh, one day I was bored, and I was feeling nostalgic and just started Googling. And, uh, you know, having grown up in a fairly small city, there wasn't really anybody else I knew that had one or, you know, I didn't have any access to software or anything. So to me, it was sort of a weird computer that nobody had ever heard of, and I always wondered if there was, you know, any references to it online or anything. And I started Googling and found your site and uh, my uh, my brain exploded all over again just to see all <laughs> of the stuff that I had forgotten about. And just the depth of your content is fantastic. You know, there's uh, all the manuals and all the software and the disk images and the screenshots and uh, it goes on and on. So uh, thank you very much for that site uh, existing. Wow. My, my pleasure. 
And it's, it's interesting to note that, too, um, I grew up in a town called Newcastle, north of Sydney, and I didn't know anybody else with an Apple II GS either. Um, and I think, in a way, that's that's always what's kept me strongly motivated uh, about the Apple II GS is, um, is just, yeah, trying to get the content out there and, and letting everyone know that this stuff is available, um, especially in regards to 2GS-specific software because... Um, you know, of course, the whole joy of, well, not the whole joy, but the, one of the main joys of owning an Apple II GS was the 16-bit stuff that took, you know, all the, uh, took advantage of all the unique capabilities of the two GS and, and not just the 8-bit Apple II. Yeah, and I think it was, a, it was a computer that I think a lot of us who used it felt was really, really underappreciated. And, uh, you know, even to this day, I think people don't realize uh, what that machine could do at the time, especially when you get into the later, you know, Ninja Force stuff and the, uh, you know, the demo scene stuff. Uh, some of it was just really, really astonishing. Absolutely, yeah. All of my uh, Atari ST and Amiga friends used to make fun of the Apple II DS kids at school and beat them up and take their <laughs> lunch money because their <laughs> processors were so slow and Apple was never going to support it. <laughs> Your dad's a drunk. You know how it goes. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was also definitely a matter of platform pride to to get the web the website up and running. So, uh, um, Alex, take us back to when you were a young Australian boy and tell us about yeah. your first experience with, uh, <laughs> with your Apple computers in general. Yeah, oh, I I remember it very vividly. Um, so, around about oh, sometime in ni- early nineteen eighty seven, um, my mother sort of said we were we were going to buy a home computer. And I was very excited because, you know, at last I could get a Commodore 64 like all my <laughs> friends. You know, Commodore 64s were great because, you know, you'd put the tape in, press play, and you could go outside and play for half an hour before <laughs> the game would actually, you know, come on. Um, but no, my mother had other ideas and um, she was totally sold on how the Apple II was um, number one sort of educational computer. And uh, I remember very distinctly she brought home a, a brochure uh, all about the Apple II GS. Uh, it looked great. Um, you know, the, the graphics looked, you know, quite akin to what I was playing in arcades at the time. So I sort of, you know, very, you know, reluctantly agreed that, okay, we'll, we'll get this, this Apple II computer, not, not a Commodore 64. And then, of course, you know, over time I sort of realized that it was quite a life-changing decision for me. Um, became an Apple fan, of course. Um, became very interested in computer graphics, and I'm a graphic designer today. Um, yeah, so that's how it's gone for me. So you actually started out with the Apple II nobody wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd, I'd had contact with uh, 8-bit Apple IIs. Our neighbors across the road had a had an Apple IIe, Um it had uh, it was one of the original model two E's, not the platinum one, and it had a monochrome screen and um, had very fond memories of going over there and playing Wavy Navy, a um, bit of karateka or karateka. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, yeah, so the two Jess was was sort of more or less uh, the, the first full blown Apple II experience uh, that I had. Now, are you like um, so many of our other guests who had it for a while and then put it away and then rediscovered it, or have you just been with the 2GS the whole time? <laughs> I probably put it away for a top of 12 months. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> so the 2GS was our 
sort of family's primary computing platform um, right up until the end of 1994. Uh, so we had that from mid-1987 to the end of 94, and then I started university, and I thought, oh, I'd better get serious and get something a bit more modern. So I sort of convinced my parents that uh, the family would be better off getting a Power Mac, which was quite expensive, of course. So we got a Power Mac 7100, and um, that was uh, running a PowerPC 601 at 66 megahertz, and after a year of that, I felt like it was slow. <laughs> um, it was fantastic being able to play sort of new games all over again. Uh, very fond memories of, of playing um, Doom 2 and uh, all the LucasArts games that were coming out uh, on the Mac at that time. Um, and even as I sort of re- remembered f- the machine feeling slow, um, I got one of the new tech uh, sort of overclock that you could attach to the processor and so I could overclock it from 66 megahertz to 80 megahertz and I thought this will fix the problem <laughs> didn't, didn't really make any change at all not not like you know putting a zipper a transwarp GS does uh, to a 2GS um, so and then around about in I can't remember when it was in 96 might have been mid-year 96 um, I saw that uh, Heinrich Gudat of Bright Software was um, asking people to test an Apple IIGS emulator for the Power Mac. And uh, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get onto that. That sounds like, like fun. I'd love the whole idea of, you know, I've moved up to the Mac now, but I'd still love to run 2GS software. And um, so, yeah, I got to be one of the testers of that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the product at that time, or the emulator was called Fast Eddie, and then it evolved into Burning to the Rescue. And I've got to say, Burning to the Rescue, for me, is still my favorite 2GS emulator. It's not perfect, but as an all-round emulator, it, it sort of has quite nice compatibility with existing software, but the user interface and just every, all the features it has, uh, for me, have always made it the best emulator. It's just a shame you can't run it particularly easily on, uh, on modern Macs now. So literally put the 2GS down for maybe 12 months while I was playing some new games on the Mac. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked what you said there about the, the Power Mac almost immediately feeling slow. I, I think that is something that new computers suffer from more than they did. Like you mentioned, you had your 2GS from 87 to 94. And, mm. and I think we all had a similar experience where that one computer lasted, you know, 10 years. And, uh, it, and you know, and it was still just as productive as the day you bought it, uh, you know, so barring, you know, new things like the internet and so on, I think that, uh, you know, they would still be useful. So uh, whereas modern computers, yeah, the software just seems to grow at a pace that matches or exceeds the hardware performance. And so they just sort of always feel too slow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, there were some wonderful things. I, I mean, I loved um, at the time I was BBSing and on the 2GS, you know, the experience wasn't particularly great. I know that, you know, Spectrum came out um uh, but for me, I just didn't really have the hardware to match and to sort of, you know, buy a faster accelerator and, and you know, a better hard drive and, and everything to make it, make it run more smoothly. I, I just remembered I got a freeware terminal um, on the Power Mac as soon as I got it. And, uh, you know, it was just wonderful having 
full ANSI graphics and um, no slowdowns. And, you know, I was just like, oh, wow, this is, this is wonderful. Um, and, of course, playing those new games. But also at the same time, um, uh, I kind of noticed that the Mac Finder was not nearly as nice as the 2GS Finder, especially with uh, file copying options um, and the fact that if you wanted to turn off extensions, system extensions, you, you literally had to move them out of the system folder, whereas the 2GS has always had the... The option just to um, deactivate uh, an extension you don't have to move them so uh, that really surprised me so you know there was there were, in a lot of ways it did feel like an upgrade but at the same time the 2GS was still doing things a lot better than, than system 7.5 was doing at the time on the Mac mm -hmm. yeah especially in the area of color uh, it's what I always loved is how you know the authors of the 2GS finder really embraced the color and they added features like the color labels and, and things throughout the finder and you know it yeah it did things that the macintosh finder didn't do for years and years later yeah that's right even even the thermometer bar startup um uh yeah that i can't i think that came in in mac os 7.6 so yeah the two just seemed to be quite advanced in in a lot of ways well the um apple II paid for mac for years so why not give it some Technology too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd, it'd be interesting to know how much of GSOS might have influenced um, later macOS development. Um, I'd like to hope that it did. I, know, I mean, I know that uh, Dave Lyons and, and Andy Nichols, or is it Nicholas? I can't remember. I know they moved on to the, um, the Mac team after uh, the Apple II team sort of uh, was disbanded, but... Um, so uh, at what point then did you decide to start up the uh, what is the Apple IIGS? Well, again, because I could sort of see that emulators were, were, were coming and I was sort of enjoying emulation on, on the Power Mac as slow as it was. I mean, it was still amazing that you could emulate any other sort of platform. I mean, that really appealed to me, being able to run all these uh, you know, games from consoles and, and just check out other platforms that, of course, I'd never be able to afford to own myself. Um, so I, I kind of took it upon myself uh, to, to just start an archive and um, immediately I uh, beta testing uh, the early version of Burning to the Rescue. I was imaging all my discs at that point and just running all the games for compatibility and I'd feedback to Heinrich and, and Andre Horseman, um, you know, what issues I was encountering with, with the programs. And uh, so that was around about 1996 and I decided then I wanted to do graphic design quite seriously. I'd done a year of um, social sciences at university and I quite enjoyed it, but um, I didn't know where I was heading with it. <laughs> I mean, it was great doing philosophy, but uh, I really didn't know <laughs> what I would do with it. So yeah, in 1996, I also sort of tied in that, yes, I wanted to do graphic design. And then I started using PageMill version two. Do you remember that program in Adobe? I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First, I think it was the first sort of WYSIWYG type HTML editor. Such as so it was, yeah, yeah. So I threw myself into making a, a website, you know, to to sort of store all the um, all the archives, all the disk images that I'd been doing at that point. Um, but I actually worked on that site for a couple of years before I say a couple of years. It was probably three years until it actually went live. 
Um, I, I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist in that regard and <laughs> I'm certainly a perfectionist when it comes to the coffee table book that I've been working on. kind of prefer to delay things and, and sort of have them out in a more finished form. I mean, I always remember back back in those days, there were so many websites with, this website is under construction with that animated wow. GIF of the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Geocities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought... <laughs> little I, shoveling guy, yeah. <laughs> as a graphic designer wanting to present things, you know, very professionally and visually, I just really wanted to avoid doing that. Um, and and then that... Um, so the first version of the site was called um, the Apple IIGS Gaming Memory Fairway, if you remember oh, that's that. that's right. I do, yep. And uh, I quite liked how people just naturally sort of truncated the name of that down down to just the fairway. I thought that was, that was really quite nice. I just came up with this bizarre long name that I thought would just be interesting and quite different from the names of other archives at the time. Um, yeah, so I sort of just went with this whole golfing sort of, you know, theme, which uh, was quite strange now that I think back on it, but um, uh, it was it was fun. Yeah, so, and then I had a friend uh, host it. He ran a, a sort of PC business, so it got hosted from uh, from his sort of, from on-site of his business for a while, but he, he sort of had to let me know, oh, you know, the amount of bandwidth being used on the site, I think you're going to have to move it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I think it was hosted somewhere else for a time. I can't remember. This was the early 2000s now. Um, I can't remember it during that period. But, but then, um, again, I think it came down to bandwidth issues and I was asking around for people who might want to host it for, for free. Um, and a chap called Greg Wildman um, sort of picked up hosting duties and it's been hosted now for, gee, probably 10 to 15 years now. And, and he, he's an IT professional in South Africa. <laughs> um, and I kind of figured, well, if there are any issues with the content, because a lot of it is technically copyrighted content, um, then having the site hosted in South Africa kind of puts a nice buffer between me and the US <laughs> and anyone who might want to come after me um, for hosting all this uh, copyrighted software. And Greg's been fantastic. Uh, he's never once asked for, for anything in return uh, for hosting a site. I sort of constantly thank him and he just says, uh, as long as it's for the Apple II, it's, it's all good. Well, that, ex that explains the .za uh, domain. I always wondered about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so quite strange, but um, I, I kind of figure if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But um, it, I mean, it would be nice perhaps to host it in the US and that way I, I would imagine everyone would be getting faster speeds. But at the same time, you know, given most sort of individual archives are probably no bigger than a megabyte, it's no, not too big a deal. It's, it's funny, um, most of the manual scans are much bigger than the, the actual disk image <laughs> archives. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but again, I, I'm quite keen on always uh, optimizing uh, the scans to make sure that um, the file sizes aren't ludicrously big, but the quality is still there as well. Yeah, well, and I think you're not wrong about maybe having a little bit of legal buffer. I mean, these uh, kind of, these archive sites do exist in a legal gray area, and uh, it's nice to have it in a in a place where if someone sends you a cease and desist, you can comfortably ignore it, and nothing will ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> I did get some uh, an email oh a long time ago, probably about 15 years ago or more. Uh, to remove um, Chessmaster 2100 of all uh, titles, um, <laughs> simply because I think that was a series that was ongoing, and um, 
So I did take it down, but then when I re-vamped sort of the site around 2007, 2008, I just put it back up there. And <laughs> I, I haven't been in touch since. <laughs> <laughs> so has that been the only um, legal request that you've had? or? Joe, Joe Cohn got in touch with me um, again probably 10 years ago. Um, I, I think he specifically asked to remove Ultima 1, which was oh, fair right. enough because he was, he was selling it. And um, I, I've always sort of made a note now that, yeah, I, I double-check whatever titles are being sold through Syndicom that they're not appearing on my site and rather that my site will just link to whoever is actually still selling the software. Well, these days that that seems to be the key to a lot of this is you know respectfully um, paying attention and and if somebody's you know selling it, it doesn't matter if they're selling five or a thousand. You know, it's distributing it for free when they're trying to do that. It's kind of bad karma, I think. So <laughs> it's great to see yeah. you know that you're able to put these things up there, and then when you know the the one or two requests that you have had come through, it's easy enough to to say okay, we'll take that down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was quite weary, actually, when I did start the site. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting compared to other platforms, uh, especially the other 16-bit platforms of the time, um, Amiga and Atari ST, that, that, you know, there were open archives and with just uh, all this copyrighted software on it. And nobody seemed to bat an eyelid about it. But around about that time of the late 90s, early noughties in the Apple II community, uh, any sort of copying was seen as being, you know, very, very frowned upon. Um, you know, piracy is running rampant, um, that sort of thing, and it's sort of stopping you know, Apple II development. But I mean, I, I, I kind of felt by that time, um, you know, really, if you if you were expecting to make money from the Apple II, you know, I think you had to be a bit realistic about how much money you would make. You probably wouldn't how to live off it um it's 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 certainly a gray area but i i sort of treaded very carefully with the first version of the site i i used an alias um which is helix energy which is a uh sort of alias i've used forever um it comes from a random doctor who episode called the mask of mandragora but uh yeah i i sort of uh i sort of did that to to sort of stay a bit safer but then as time went on, I started using my real name and uh, only for to look daggy now because, you know, 4AMs made the whole pseudonym look cool again. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of that came forth from the those really awful flame wars um, in the late 90s on, on CSA2 yeah. and Delphi. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, I, Come on, I, realistically, of course, they were smart enough to realize that, you know, I'm not making my living off of this, or if I am, it's not going to last for long. It seemed to be more a matter of respect, like this, you know, I put this out there and it is my property, so why is it showing up over here and you didn't tell me about this? And it's, it can be an unpleasant surprise, I think. Yeah. And and then you got some people who maybe didn't deal with their anger all that well and things got really ugly. And, but yeah, I, 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 like you, I, I think I, I had the same thoughts where I would, I would see these huge archives of Commodore 64 software and, and, and nobody mm. cared, but Apple too, man, they came right after you if you put anything up. So no, I remember those flame wars too. And I, uh, around about that time, 95, 96, I, I wasn't, I'd stopped reading Compsys Apple II and uh, I was never on, on Delphi. Um, I, I found the whole Delphi thing quite strange actually because um, 
I kind of knew it existed, but uh, I, I felt it was odd that you had to pay for this service to join the community. Um, I felt that was a bit elitist and I couldn't justify the money to, to do it really. So I was never part of the Delphi community. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly understand uh, and, and appreciate um, that it could have uh, curtailed future sort of Apple II developments. But I guess really I think, you know, we should be doing it for the love of it rather than yeah, trying to think we're going to make a living from it. Yeah, I understand, I understand you wanting to quit reading CSA 2. That got soul-crushing for a while there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, it seems like kind of a natural effect as, as the market on a particular platform is is dying off. You know, people are going to be fighting harder and harder for the remaining scraps. And uh, yeah. I think that's that's what we saw with the, the piracy, uh, the anger around that. You know, I remember uh, one of the 2GS graphics packages I bought, or one of the 2GS packages I bought was uh, Dream Graphics. And, yeah, I bought uh, that. Yeah, it was a beautiful piece of software. Uh, one of the only pieces of software I actually uh, legitimately bought on the 2GS. <laughs> and uh, uh, and there was a, I remember the manual came with this large, angry red note. It was literally on a red piece of paper saying piracy is killing the, the Apple II. And there was this whole sermon about how you're a terrible person. And, uh, you know, which is ironic because I just paid for the software. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the time, I mean, I was uh, a teenager and had no money and uh, had saved my uh, my snow shoveling allowance for uh, for quite a while to buy this thing and then uh, to be to be talked down to like a criminal was not uh, not a great experience but uh, no. then again you know it was the only thing I bought so I guess it was fair the, dub <laughs> the double irony of it is is of course is that the authors of dream graphics were pirates themselves mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as I know they were the East Coast connection group that um, cracked a lot of 2GS software. Yeah, I wonder about that. The graphical style of the UI, it had a very distinctive kind of scene demo kind of feel to it, which is part of what I liked about it. But yeah, you sort yeah. of knew that, okay, the people that wrote this were, <laughs> were definitely in the scene. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, it was, um, uh, it was also one of those things where uh, software was transitioning to, to, to from a product model to a little more of a support model. And uh, one of the reasons people would buy software is instead of pirating it was to get support. And uh, the Dream Graphics folks, unfortunately, were not great about that. I had some questions and some feature suggestions for it because I, I was also using Beagle Brothers uh, Platinum Paint a lot. And it had a couple of features I really wanted, and I wanted to be using Dream Graphics. Uh, and so I asked for those features and uh, was, uh, yeah, they were not uh, kind to me uh, no. when I requested that they possibly add some features. So, uh, no, really. uh, yeah, kind of a negative experience all around, but uh, it was still a, a lovely piece of software for what it was. It was. I mean, I, I certainly... Um did I think I did the majority of the graphics I was doing um, at the time with Dream Graphics after that, but I was disappointed that the plug-in sort of architecture that it, that was included with Dream Graphics never got exploited. I was sort of really hoping for all sorts of new plug-ins and, and that sort of thing, but yeah, that never happened. Yeah, it's one of those things where if it had come out maybe five years sooner, it would have been brilliant <laughs> and probably would have defined the platform. But yeah, it just came out at the very, very end, right when, you know, it was in that period when nobody was finishing anything, you know, uh, uh, Toolbox and FTA and all these people were putting out all these sort of demos of games mm. that were tantalizing and then nobody ever finished anything. And it was, yeah, it was kind of exciting and depressing at the same time. Yeah, it was. I mean, 
at the time I was doing graphics, uh, trying to do graphics for, for games, um, I, uh, I'd met uh, a guy called Ian Brumby on a, on a very rare thing in, in Australia at that time, which was an Apple II run BBS. Um, he was based in Canberra, but um, immediately I, I thought, oh my God, I've met someone who can program on the 2GS and, um, and was like, let's make some games. And uh, we, we started making a pinball game because uh, there were no 2GS specific pinball games apart from Pinball Wizard, which was an unreleased um, game. And if you've ever played it, the physics of the ball don't work in any way I'm familiar with with pinball games. So we needed a good pinball game, and and then we, you know, he, I did some graphics for that, and he he um he started to code it, and uh, and then I moved on to another idea. We need a top-down vertical shooting game, and um, so I started graphics on that, and, and then I moved on to a horizontal side scroller idea, and poor old poor old Ian couldn't keep up with all my crazy ideas, and <laughs> in the end he um. He ended up finishing uh, Instant Access, which is a Finder replacement program. If if you've ever ever used that, it's it's still really good to this day. It was sort of based on Directory Opus on the Amiga. Yes. Anyway, I've digressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of us were doing it doing that at the time. It was it's so much easier to start a software project than it is to finish it. <laughs> that mm. uh, the first uh, first sixty percent is a lot of fun, and the last twenty percent is utter misery, and then the middle twenty percent <laughs> is somewhere in between. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of a lot of unfinished uh, computer games out there. I think on people's hard drives. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd like to, I'd like to actually post a blog um, on what is the Apple II just for all for all that work um, that I did. I think I've been. Keeping it, you know, sort of just there in case, you know, <laughs> I suddenly get rich and I've got the time to finish these games, but really it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever thought about uh, offering your services to retro game developers? I bet there's a lot of people out there that would want, uh, you know, pixel art. Yeah, I, I haven't done pixel art probably since the late 90s now. And I mean, I used to love doing it, but I... Now that I've I've worked in sort of industry um, for graphic design now for the last round about fifteen years, um, uh, pixel art's very definitely a craft and an art form that requires time and um, sort of the the uh, commercial um, what's the word. Uh, necessities of doing graphic design um my way of working with graphic design is just to churn and burn these days um <laughs> unfortunately and my my sort of sort of crafted pixel art has is just really uh it's like it's like um if you if you've learned another language in the past and you just don't keep using it you lose it and i really felt like i've lost it and i just probably wouldn't even have the patience to do pixel art anymore and I, I think I was okay at it, but um, I don't think I was great. And and that's why I've sort of suggested um, if, if anyone does want to develop a game on the 2GS, if they get in touch with the artists on Pixel Joint. Um, I did quite a, uh, quite a lot of slideshows converted to the 2GS of artwork on Pixel Joint. And everybody on Pixel Joint is just doing next level pixel artwork. It's uh, It's amazing. Yeah, there is some amazing stuff on there. Whenever I've Googled, uh, if I'm working on a project, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll just Google sprite sets and things, and uh, I seem to always end up on Pixel Joint and just just find amazing things hiding in there. It's, it is a great resource. So, what are your uh, future plans for the site? Well, 
I've I've had in mind for a while that I'd like to do a complete makeover of the site. Um, it's obviously getting a bit um, old. Uh, it's you know it's not responsively designed, uh, so it's not going to sort of show up particularly nicely on smartphones. Um, sort of adding a few more fields. Um, sort of been scanning even just the disk labels um, of. of 2GS software, um, but uh, there's sort of no field at the moment to, to put that in on the site. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tricky because, um, you know, there are, there are periods where I really like to try and focus on working on, on the coffee table book. And then, and then uh, Antoine will sort of archive a whole bunch of things that we didn't currently have archived. And then I switch from working on the coffee table book to back to archiving and and I still have all these other ideas about just making the website better and and yeah, just just with with work and 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 having a two year old daughter, it's it's a very crazy uh, <laughs> way of dividing up all my time. Yes, yeah, so I think I mean yeah, it's just tricky. I'm not particularly good at organising my time, um, but uh, yeah, I just sort of go the scattergun approach, and it kind of means that yeah it's kind of just like it was back doing games on the 2gs 20 years ago um you know you, you get so much of it done and but a lot of things don't get finished so uh one, one thing i love about your site is is the completeness of it you know you, you have scans of box art and manuals and all, all sorts of things where where have you acquired all of this content over the years have you been scanning it all yourself or do people submit it or People definitely submit it. So um, when I revamped the site in 2007, 2008, I included all these fields for things like manuals and um, uh, you know even game solutions and, and things like that. And um, I, I kind of felt at the time, well, I, I didn't want to scan the manuals myself. Um, I own um, quite a large you know collection of boxed uh, Apple II and IIgs software myself. Um, most of that was actually from from when our family sort of originally bought it in the in the late eighties, um, but I kind of just felt you know again I wanted to concentrate on the coffee table book or just you know getting um, you know new disc images put up on the site rather than spending the time scanning manuals. Um, but um, I can't remember uh, the guy's name. He runs the Apple Two GS Info site in France. And he sent me a whole bunch of manual scans that he had done. And that kind of just motivated me. Well, you know what? We've got all these scans already that he's done. If I scanned all the titles he hasn't done from my collection, we can add them together. And that sort of kick-started the whole scanning of manuals for me. Um, so it's just like gathering momentum and it just snowballed. And then Antoine, of course, started scanning manuals as well and We've got a pretty complete set of manuals for almost all 2GS software now. I mean, we're still missing quite a bit, but um, it's I'd say three quarters of uh, 2GS specific software has a manual for it now, which is which is fantastic. So, are there any are there any like unicorns like oh I you know wish I could find a scan of this box art or a disc image for that game or anything like that? Always, always. Um, oh gosh, the un- the unicorns. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've been on eBay for 15 years now, and there are just some titles that have never, ever come up. Um, it's so frustrating. Even simple things, um, so Unicorns, literally, <laughs> Unicorn software came out with a lot of educational software, um, things like Tales of the Arabian Nights, and 
The Adventures of Sinbad and all these sort of reading, writing, compre- comprehension programs, um, some some uh, mathematics programs, and um, just it. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen um, some of those titles ever come up for sale on eBay. Uh, Antoine actually got in touch with someone who used to work at Unicorn Software, and he doesn't have copies of them anymore. Also, I'm the number one title I'm after at the moment is Academic Quiz Kid, which, as far as I know, was the last um, 2GS-specific uh, piece of software that Orange Cherry did, and... Um, I could be wrong, but I've got the catalog from Orange Cherry from that time, and it looks like the program could be Apple Talked Networked. Um, it doesn't go mm. into specifics, but you know, in my head, I'm imagining that you, if you had a lab full of two GSs, you could have set up um, quizzes for students, um, and then perhaps all the results were recorded and sent to a, a central server or something like that. But it sounds really interesting. And just, you know, for that reason alone, that for me is the number one sort of unicorn. But I've been in touch with uh, two people who worked uh, at Orange Cherry and neither of them have copies of it. Um, you know, so we've, we've gotten really close, but, you know, it's still not close enough to, to really tracking down some of these lost archives. So at least with the, with the unicorn titles, uh, we have disc images of them. But yeah, uh, academic quiz kid, um, we we don't have we don't even have a disc image for that. Other sort of unicorns, um, there's uh, laureate learning systems titles. So recently, Brian Weiser was able to supply four AM with um, his discs of the eight bit titles that laureate did, and laureate specialised in um, special needs educational software but they also did two just specific uh, versions as well. And we don't have any of those archived. And uh, another frustrating thing was, I think even 10 years ago, they might've actually still been selling them on their website. Um, but the, the prices were still kind of like early nineties prices. And I kind of felt, oh, I can't really afford to buy, you know, half a dozen titles um, and get them shipped to Australia just for archiving them. Um, but then, of course, they disappeared from the website, and I really regret <laughs> not buying them at the time. Um, I've been in touch with them since, and um, they're like, what, Apple 2GS, what's that? Um, yeah, so, yeah, I'm you know, quite worried that they're just not archived anywhere, those titles. They must exist somewhere, and that's the frustrating thing. But, um, yeah, they're not within the hands of, you know, those who are especially keen like us to archive <laughs> the software. Yeah, that really echoes what people like 4AM and Jason Scott and, and other archivists have been saying uh, is that, yeah, we don't need the games. I mean, we got all those. Everybody had those and everybody still has them. Uh, yeah. it's, the, it's the weird stuff. It's the educational stuff. It's some of the business software. It's the utilities. Uh, that's the stuff that vanished. You know, and the educational stuff's especially challenging, I'm sure, because, yeah, mainly only schools bought it and they were probably quick to throw it away when, when they no longer needed it. Nobody thought it was yeah. going to be, you know, interesting to, to archive. Uh, and then related to that, you know, 4AM is always talking about how uh, copy protection has been the great uh, enemy to archival. Have you encountered any issues with that, with things being copy protected? Absolutely. And I'm I'm not a, a cracker at all myself. My sector editing skills are, are very basic. 
So I was lucky um, that, uh, I mean, it's been quite a few years ago that I've collaborated with Antoine in that, um, yeah, he's, he's able to crack the titles and, and I'll get them online and, and hopefully they'll, they'll live forever. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, and it's been, it's been so great uh, for 4am to come onto the scene and um, sort of, yeah, sort of make mention of how copyright protection has actually worked. You know, we kind of mm-hmm. assumed, Haha, you know, we're all, all patting ourselves on the back and saying, oh, look how clever we are. We've cracked all the software. We really haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it all, it all came down to what was cool back in the 80s and the 90s. You know, of course you're going to crack Rastan, but are you mm-hmm. going to crack Talking Academic Quiz, quiz Kid um, <laughs> and share that around and go, hey, I'm, I'm you know, I'm totally elite, guys. Um, <laughs> you're a loser. We're going to beat you up. Get out of here. <laughs> So, yeah, and of course, now we, we're in the situation where we are today where just a lot of this software, which could be fun. And, and for me, um, you know, that I do have a, a two-year-old daughter and, and we play Sticky Bear on the 2GS. She loves it. So I'm, I'm really motivated. I've been motivated for years to, to really try and uh, track down educational software. Now, you have had some success in getting um, unreleased titles, at least a few of them uh, uploaded. Has- has that been just again donations, or have you pr- actively pursued some of these? Oh, I, I've actively pursued them, but they've always led to dead ends. Um, it was wonderful that um, uh, Hubert uh, uh, Albars uh, just recently released uh, Jigsaw Deluxe um, because he's been saying for years, "Oh, yes, it's stored away somewhere on on my old hard drive, which is in Spain. I live in Mexico now, and I'm like, oh, when are you going to make that trip over to Spain again? Yeah, I think he um, mentioned that when he was on our show last year. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, as it turned out, um, uh, Antoine got uh, got Hubert's uh, old two uh, GS with hard drive, and he had a devil devil of a time uh, backing up the contents, um, but he managed to do it, and uh, so. Jigsaw Deluxe uh, is now archived as well, which is which is fantastic. But I've I've kind of felt in more recent years I I, I don't know I I've kind of given up on really expecting to find these these gaming unicorns. So things like um, uh, Renegade, the the side scrolling uh, beat 'em up game, uh, I I just don't think I don't know I just can't imagine it still exists anywhere. Um, and again, if it does, it's lying on a shelf, on a dusty shelf somewhere, and it's the media is going to die before anybody's going to get to image it. It's it's particularly frustrating because I only knew other, one other person in Newcastle who was uh, actively an Apple 2GS user, and he swears he saw the 2GS version of Renegade from <laughs> some guy that bought it in Hong Kong. <laughs> Um, it all sounds incredibly unlikely to me, but um, he absolutely swears and says, are you sure it wasn't the version that's, you know, the three-and-a-half-inch disc version that's just the 8-bit version on the three-and-a-half-inch disc? And he said, no, 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 it was definitely 2GS. And that there's, there is evidence out there that supports that there was a 2GS version. I, I bought the 8-bit version of Renegade and, and uh, the screenshot on the back of it has a 2GS screenshot. It's definitely a 2GS screenshot because it's using the Shaston font. Hmm. Um but it, I just feel like you've got to give up at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, another game for me that I was really hoping should exist was um, Manhunter San Francisco, the sequel yeah. to Man, Manhunter New one. York. 
Yeah, Manhunters, it was such a great game, you know, quite different from anything else Sierra had done. I really loved the sort of 70s sort of sci-fi influences on it and that it was gory and, you know, it was, it was really cool and there's no reason why they, well, at least no technical reason why Sierra didn't release uh, Manhunter San Francisco because that was the last um, game that Sierra used using the AG Ideas uh, AGI, AGI development platform, I should say. Um, and I think it and it was probably just a marketing decision or a sales decision that um, perhaps Manhunter New York didn't sell particularly well on all platforms, but particularly on the 2GS because it had even a, a smaller audience and they decided not to release the sequel. I don't know, but that was, that was sort of disappointing. Again, I'd always hope too that... Um, uh, someone might be able to convert um, the homebrew AGI games that people have done and, and actually get them to work on the 2GS. But, you know, I'm sure that requires a fair amount of sort of programming skill that I certainly don't have. But that would be fun that perhaps we could hack together a, a version of um, Manhunter San Francisco to work on the 2GS. But then it probably wouldn't have the, the really cool music and and digitized sound effects that all the other 2GS titles had for, for those Sierra games. Yeah, I've actually been in, been in those meetings where people are making that decision and it's like, well, even if it's literally just, you know, a couple of weeks of converting some art assets and, and releasing it, if it's only going to sell, you know, a tiny number of copies and even though it's super easy to do, it's, it's just not worth it to do it. Um, and I think that happened a lot with the 2GS, especially towards the end, because you see a lot of uh, game boxes, you know, with 2GS screenshots on the back or references to the 2GS. Uh, for me, uh, the the biggest unicorn for me on that front was Ultima 6. And uh, that was, yeah. you know, that was the one game that I wanted more than any other. And it was, you know, it was the game where they origin cut the Apple II uh, out of their uh, out of their supported uh, hardware line and it was such an amazing looking game and there was that tiny little reference to the 2GS on the back of the box on the PC version and I clung to that for years yes. <laughs> just just sure that a 2GS version was going to come out because they mentioned it on the box and uh, there was something about a you know Apple 2GS's trademark Apple or whatever and that just that I clung to that and uh, then for years I clung to the notion that well maybe uh, there was a you know a version in development and maybe that will turn up someday and and uh, I think as far as I've been able to determine, there was never even a version of it uh, that anyone had started developing. Uh, have you heard anything different on that? Um, I, I remember Antoine actually asked John Romero because John Romero was working in Origin at the time. And um, he seemed to think the project had never really started on the 2GS or, or never actually started. Um, that's the last I remember of it. I've got an entry on what is the Apple II GS for Ultima Six in the unreleased section. Um, I'd need to refer to that to, to see what the what <laughs> the last sort of um, uh, rumors actually were. But it did seem to confirm that yeah, it, it wasn't really started, and it was quite interesting. Um, I can't remember the name of the podcast. It's a UK based retro gaming podcast, and they they interviewed Richard Garriott, and Richard Garriott actually said that. Um, he was still so mad keen on the 8-bit Apple II, even in the late 80s, that it almost bankrupted the company because <laughs> uh, 
um, they were just focusing on doing killer Apple II games, and, and that would have been games like Space Rogue and mm-hmm. um, uh, Knights of Legend, uh-huh. um, these epic RG- RPGs that Times look amazing. Lore. Yeah, yeah, Times of Law, and um, but then he he kind of realised a bit late that um, all the coding stuff were sort of you know specialist coding than sixty five oh two, and they really needed to. <laughs> move on to other platforms if they were going to survive. Um, I really recommend uh, checking out that um, uh, that podcast. It's a it's a great interview with Richie Garriott, actually. Hmm. Um, okay, yeah, we'll try and dig that up and link to it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Those those last few years of eight bit support for from Origin were incredible. I mean, uh, yeah, Space Rogue. I mean, that's a game that never should have existed on the eight bit. It, it's an astonishing game uh, mm. and one that I actually still play to this day. Uh, and, uh, and Knights of Legend is probably my top three favorites uh, Apple II games of all time, but uh, that one has not held up as quite as well, mainly because of uh, the commitment required to play it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's something like it's it's something like twelve or or ten or twelve sides, uh, and there's so much disc swapping going on. Uh, just to you know, you, to look at your character. Uh, you know, screen, you have to swap discs. And then if you want to look at what armor your character is wearing, you swap discs again, and it, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and I was happy to do that uh, as a youth, but I don't have the patience for it today. No. Uh, well, I, but, when I, um, when was it? Uh, 2013, I actually um, flew to California specifically to stay at Tony Diaz's place to see what archives he had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I actually found a three and a half inch disc installer for Knights of Legend, and, and that's that's huh. on what is the Apple II GS. And oh. um, apparently, it's a legitimate installer that the author wrote due to criticisms of, of all the disc swapping. Hmm. And um, but I couldn't get it to work. I mean, um, I downloaded uh, copies of the game from from Asimov, and um, they're all cracked. So I was thinking maybe the cracked versions are just not working with the installer, so it might require um, original versions um, mm. to run with the installer. But uh, yes, I mean that would be uh, that would be awesome to to have all that on a single three and a half inch disc volume. Yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, and that I guess we would also have to dig up the manual. I don't know. Do you have a scan of the manual for that on your site, or do you know I- one? I don't have a scan of it, but I know that um, Jeremy Barr Hyde, who's uh, another Australian uh, Apple II guy, who's recently sort of only just recently sort of come back to uh, the Apple II, he got a, a, a quite a large haul of uh, boxed Apple II software, and one of which was Knights of Legend. I, uh, I remember that. So I think I. I can't remember whether I've already asked him to image the discs, um, but if it's anyone who could image the discs, it would be him because he's he's already got uh, quite a detailed blog on how he's recovering a lot of Australian-specific uh, 8-bit Apple II software um, using Passport, using um, the EDD card. Um, so, yeah, hopefully he'll be able to get around to uh, some nice fresh copies of Knights of Legend and hopefully scanning the manual as well. Mm, that would be excellent. Yeah, I, uh, I also, of course, pirated that game back in the day. <laughs> but uh, one of my one of my junior high school uh, schoolmates uh, had had bought it and uh, had the manual for it. So we sort of passed the manual around so we could all read it. Uh, and I mean, it was a phone book. I mean, it was it was a novel, mm. and the game was the game's utterly unplayable without it. I mean, just the, there's just 
pages and pages of charts of armor and weapons and the economy is all explained and it just yeah they, they, it's it's again it's the level of commitment uh that 80s rpgs required that i don't think you can get away with today but uh uh yeah it's definitely unplayable without that manual <laughs> yeah yeah An- another or at least a similar title um uh in the yeah how economy actually affected things was BattleTech and mm-hmm. um uh i recently added BattleTech. well i say recently it's been the last couple of years uh as a eight bit game on a three and a half inch disc so that's there but i started playing and it's like you know you know economy's affecting you know my character and what i can buy and it's like oh my goodness you know I just I just want to play you know a game with with you know Macross and Robotech inspired giant mecha you know um, mm. <laughs> not, not not worry so much about uh, the, the the hardcore economics and how that affects the game universe. Well, uh, I will say uh, in terms of unicorns to wrap that up, um, the one that I was really glad to see on your site is Time Lord. Uh, that was to me uh, just an earth shattering game demo. Uh, again, really heartbreaking that whoever uh, produced that game never finished it uh if, if there's any 2gs programmers out there looking for a project please finish that mm. game uh because it was just visually astonishing and really really amazing uh you know the potential of it there was different pieces of ui you know there that weren't functional yet and you could kind of see what they were going for and that yeah uh, you know the, the production values were amazing and uh yeah, I don't, I, I've never quite forgiven the universe for having that game never be finished. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember coming across that demo years and years and years ago and I was like, wow, this is amazing and just felt so, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, quite an in-depth game, basically, and you could see the potential of just, you know, adventuring for hours with it and... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I suppose our expectations were already shaped by the by the early to mid '90s. That yeah, oh, it's not finished. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It had the the potential. It was good. It looked like Alien Mind kind of taken to the next level. I think you know it's got to be on everyone's short list of favorite two GS games. But uh, uh, yeah, just all of the the knowledge of this you know that the scene programmers and demo programmers had brought to the two GS by that point. You know, it was just all poured into those last couple of demos that people were producing and. Uh, yeah, but it wasn't to be. I think uh, Gate was another one. There was a game called Gate that was never yeah. quite, uh, never quite finished. Oh no, Gate Gate was finished. Was it? Okay, yeah, it was certainly yeah. playable. Um, I was under the impression it was a demo, though. Yeah, no, there was there was a demo, and I think I've got the demo version included. But um, mm. no, uh, Seven Hill Software actually released Gate uh, to the US market, and I believe Toolbox released it in uh, in France. Okay. Um, I've not finished Gate. Um, but no, it's it definitely um, definitely exists as a as a complete game. It's it's okay. it's on what is the Apple Two GS. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to try that. I may have never only play, I may have only played the demo. I don't remember about that one. Yeah, and I, I know we've talked about this for quite a long time, but um, you know, other unicorns, of course, include sort of the playable version of Sword of Sodan. Mm, um, so yeah. the demo of that's you know been available forever. I um I've certainly tried to chase that up. Uh, Mitch Spector has tried to chase that up for years. Uh, mm-hmm. The last lead he had was that um, Jimmy Huey, eight um, uh, uh, bit and two GS programmer, um, he was given the source code to try and complete the project. Um, but yep, uh, I've I've tried contacting him myself and he he hasn't responded. Um, yeah, so. <sighs> 
<laughs> yeah, Sword of Sodan was certainly remarkable. I mean, that was someone sat down and said, let's see how just how big we can make characters on the 2GS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it is it is really something special for sure, that that engine. Quinn, weren't you able to uh, donate something recently to the 2GS? To the, uh, what is it, 2GS? Donate something. A sweary mod from a... Oh, yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, I the guess task I only... Force. <laughs> Yeah, I only indirectly donated that, I guess. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, um, so the backstory for anyone who doesn't know is that, uh, growing up, uh, we had Task Force, as many of us did, and someone from some BBS or somewhere, I don't remember where, I got this swear hack for it, which replaced all the sounds, uh, all of the voiceover sounds with, uh, naughty words, which, you know, to a junior high school kid was hilarious. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, to, to, to some adults as well. And, uh, <laughs> But of course, uh, this wasn't widespread, apparently, and I couldn't find anyone else in the Apple II community who had heard of this thing or had any idea what I was talking about. And uh, people didn't believe me that it existed. And uh, I couldn't image it myself because it was in my parents' basement 2,000 miles away. Uh, but uh, <laughs> You're such yeah, a liar, I, Quinn. <laughs> yes. But I think, uh, I think it did show up. Uh, so I think I asked around on, on the Apple II Enthusiast Facebook group or somewhere, and someone did actually turn it up. Uh, someone else did have it and uh, assured me that I was not crazy and this did exist. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it, uh, it is archived now, finally. So that was, yeah. that was good news. No. No, I was pleased because I'd, I'd certainly had requests over the years and, and I'd never heard of it before. So, yeah, when you guys were talking on it, about it, um, I was like, oh, wow. Excellent. <laughs> We're going to have to track that down. Yeah, it's funny how apparently rare it was and yet somehow it landed in my hands, you know, in a a suburban semi-rural junior high school in a small city in Canada. <laughs> you know, I, I can't imagine, like I can see someone in Silicon Valley having it or whatever, but I don't know how, how on earth did it end up so far <laughs> away. Uh, and yet nobody else had heard of it. I thought it was pretty interesting. Hmm. Well, I, I still find in, in you know, uh, searching through whatever recovered archives there are. Um, so the, the Mac GUI uh, vault recently um, recovered uh is it Genie's archives and even Delphi's archives? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting how some programs you can find across all all archives, all those old archives, whether it was sort of maybe Apple Link or Genie or Delphi, but then some programs just only seem to make it as far as one online service and it just didn't seem to get spread around. Um, that I still come across little bits and pieces like that, um, you know, which is... It's so exciting, actually. It's like treasure <laughs> hunting. I'm sifting for gold through these old, all these old archives. It's I really enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, I bet I bet a lot of software now only exists probably on Usenet too. You know, for a while there, the way to exchange software was you know bin hexing and UU encoding and posting Ugh. in giant threads in Usenet. <laughs> you know, and there was Byzantine software utilities to glue these posts together back into yeah. one and then un UU encode it. And then maybe if you didn't miss a bit anywhere and you're uh, yeah. copy and pasting, it might actually work. And so uh, it was such a painful process. I think I got it to work a couple of times, but uh, yeah, I would not be shocked if there's software that only exists in that form somewhere. Yeah, I, I haven't dipped back into Usenet. I mean, I remember at the time, um, yeah, in the, in the oh, I don't know, about 93, 94, right, when I first got a modem and, and I was doing all that and I just thought I was a mad hacksaw being able <laughs> to download stuff from Usenet and, and then decode it. And But, yeah, I don't have the time for that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would be uh, remiss if we moved on without 
um, talking about this. In fact, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, a coffee table book. What's what's going on with that? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, constantly. Well, I say constantly. I'll I might not be working on it for a month or so. Um, what I have done in the last probably eighteen months is uh, rejig the layouts, which I'm fairly happy with. Um, but I've got to say, it's actually really difficult to, to sort of find the right balance um, between adding the amount of content that I that I've sort of amassed. So I've, I've taken so many more screenshots of, of every game, and what I've always wanted to do with the book is actually have the screenshots in a sort of chronological order, so that it's it's all, it's almost like a comic book. You could read the game, you know, as narrative, you know, through the screenshots in order. And of course, just playing through every game <laughs> takes a long time to do that. <laughs> um, and there's still some RPGs that I, I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I going <laughs> to find the time to play through these? But I've, I've sort of focused on trying to get the gaming part done because it's definitely the biggest section of the book. And um, it's gotten to a size now where, like, where I've had to consider, well, maybe I should split the book up into four different volumes, just like essentially <laughs> um, the What is the 2GS uh, site is. Um, and I, and again, I was really working hard the last 18 months to try and get the book finished for the 30th anniversary of the 2GS this year, but alas, um, it's, uh, it hasn't worked out that way. And I, and dare I say it, part of the problem's me is I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, unfortunately. <laughs> and, um, and I, I kind of, I started doing this project, um, as a book, oh gosh, probably 10, 11 years ago now. <laughs> And um, uh, it was a project that I wanted to set for myself. You know, I didn't have any marketing people telling me what to do and, and really no, no sort of commercial uh, sort of d- decisions that should be influencing how the book should be done. I mean, obviously, I need to make it uh, cost effective um, so that when it is finished, it, it won't be crazy expensive, like uh, Apple's uh, brand new <laughs> coffee table book. Uh, mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and and just like I was saying too, like uh, as part of that, you know, uh, just trying to I've tried to reduce the page count, um, you know, because I've I've got so much I've probably got too much content now, um, so it's 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 a ludicrously high page count. So I've got to whittle things down and try and redesign layouts so that, that I, I'm still including the same amount of visual content I always wanted to do, but you know, uh, just with uh, more economy on the on the number of um, uh, page so, uh, number of pages in the book itself. Can't wait to see that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I apologize to everyone. Actually, I, <laughs> I think people are probably giving up on on me, just like I'm giving up on all these unreleased unicorn games. Um, <laughs> but uh, rest assured, I, I just want it to be the best possible book, and that you'll you'll all be happy uh, to have it on your coffee tables, and when you've got the neighbours over, they'll. You know, you can convert them. You can convert them to the <laughs> Apple II. They will become one of us. Well, I'd rather spend 300 bucks on that than, than a coffee table book that doesn't even include Apple II stuff. So, mm. yeah. Look, I'm, I, I, I don't think I'll buy it, but I am intrigued to see Apple's coffee table book. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to see from a design perspective, you know, how they've done it all. You know, um, I'm sure, of course, I, I've seen sample pages of it, um, and it looks all very minimal, but I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as a sort of tangible physical thing, you know, how does it feel and how does it look? 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I could justify the price point just just for, out of curiosity. Yeah. Well, regarding your coffee table book, all I have to say is shut up and take my money. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm honestly not normally a coffee table book person, uh, but because uh, they just end up being something you have to dust for the rest of your life. But uh, I, I will absolutely buy this uh, regardless of the cost. So uh, <laughs> whenever it's ready, I, I will be there with uh, credit card in hand. Me too. I mean, shut no, up and I'll, take I'll... Quinn's money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've, I've considered, well, should it be a physically printed book or, um, you know, should it be something more digital like a, an app? Um, I'm, you know, I still like the idea of the book. I mean, in many ways, I think um, we should be uh, sort of uh, archiving things in a, in a hard copy form because, as has turned out, digital isn't that reliable as a permanent storage method at all. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've considered back and forth, or well, maybe it shouldn't be a physical book, but um, ah, look, I'll see it through. Don't worry. <laughs> I, will, I will gladly take your money. No. <laughs> we have see how, see how it goes. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I, I certainly didn't do it to, to make money from it, but I, I, given that I've spent 10 years on it now, I feel like, oh, gosh, I should probably make some sort of return on this investment time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, Mike, any uh, last questions before we move on to the news? No, I think that uh, pretty much covers it. All right. Uh, Alex, do you have time to stick around with us here? I sure do. Excellent. All right, Mike, uh, give me a bumper. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. Well, we've got quite a bit of news here, so we'll uh, probably burn through it uh, fairly quickly since we had a lovely chat there that went a little longer than our interviews usually do. We just can't, uh, can't, I can't, can't help talking to GS all day. Yeah, I know, uh, I know. <laughs> so first news item, uh, Michael Mahone of uh, Kansas Fest uh, fame and uh, uh, luminary in the community, if you like, uh, has uh, been simulating uh, Burroughs 220 on his Apple IIe. And uh, this is something that he showed at Kansas Fest this year. And uh, it was really cool. It was kind of preliminary. And uh, he's been adding consistently to it. So uh, it's looking to be quite complete now. Um, I, I love this project. I think it's really neat to uh, simulate uh, something really old on something slightly less old. Uh, that just, <laughs> it just tickles me, and I'm not sure why, but, uh, but it does. Um, have, you, have you seen this one, uh, Alex? I looked at it this morning, and um, so is it a simulator rather than an emulator? I would say so, yes. I don't think he's trying to be cycle accurate or anything like that. He's just yeah, uh, yeah. simulating the architecture and the peripherals, yeah. Yeah. No, my certainly, I mean, I'm always interested in sort of old mainframe and mini computers. Um, I, I went, to, when I was traveling around Europe, I, um, I went and living in the UK, I, I went to Bletchley Park, and they have an amazing... Um, museum of, of just gear there, um, old mainframes, you know, vacuum tube stuff. Um, supposedly the first computer uh, in the world um, that was a, a code-breaking thing against the Nazis. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely interested in that, but don't know a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
Uh, okay, moving right along. Uh, we've got, speaking of RPGs, we've done a lot of talking about those here today. Uh, Nox Archaist uh, is an RPG that uh, is being developed by the fine folks over at 6502 Workshop, and uh, it's a very uh, Ultima-esque uh, 8-bit uh, engine that they're developing. And uh, this is kind of a neat thing they're doing uh, is uh, as kind of a uh, uh, preview along the way while they're developing the game. They're re- they've started releasing these little story vignettes that are built in the engine. And uh, so we'll link to the first episode of those. Uh, this one's called Shattered Sword. And uh, it's it's really nice. It tells a story. There's music and uh, tells the story with uh, all of it in engine, uh, except I think the music, which is uh, uh, overdubbed. But uh, it shows off uh, some nice features uh, of the engine. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, this particular video is showing conversation with NPCs and NPCs moving between locations based on a daily schedule and some new interactive tiles. So uh, it's looking really, really good. They've made a lot of progress since their last uh, video that they showed. So uh, definitely uh, looking forward to this one. I, I love in, in the, video, the latest video that when you go to bed, your character actually appears in the bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, yeah. Instead of just standing beside it saying, you are asleep now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the visibility I really like, uh, you know, when the character goes inside buildings, uh, you're field of view is constrained to what you can see, you know, through the doorway, you know, sort of raycasting out through the doorway and just shows you those uh, areas of the outside based on your line of sight. Uh, it's really yeah. nicely done. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's fairly expensive to do that kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's nice that they're getting good frame rates. Yep. All right, moving right along. Uh, looks like ADT Pro 2.02 has been uh, released, and I believe this was uh, to add some support for like the Ethernet 2. I think yeah, support for, for Ethernet 2 added, and uh, some uh, bug fixes to V Drive and Ethernet and audio and server things. So nice to see that ADT Pro is still being updated. I assume you've used ADT Pro, Alex? Believe it or not, I have never used ADT Pro. Wow, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. I In archiving uh, all my sort of 2GS software, I would just always use uh, old Macs with floppy drives mm. and then mm-hmm. either uh, Apple talk them across or share them across um, well, some other way that way. And, and then in more recent times, I've just been using the, the CFFA 3000. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I guess the 2GS is sort of uniquely situated that way. It has a, it still has a sort of tenuous bridge to the modern world via Apple mm. Talk and and three and a half inch floppies and other mechanisms. Yeah, oh, very cool. Uh, well, speaking of 2GS uh, system software, uh, System 603 came out fairly recently, and uh, uh, we're hearing from Antoine Vigneault that it's got a fairly serious bug in it. Um, the aux types uh, are not being generated correctly, which means that uh, uh, drivers and some other things have the uh, incorrect aux type on them, which can cause all sorts of misbehavior. Uh, for example, uh, SCSI drivers not working properly uh, and so on. So uh, uh, he's recommending people stick with uh, 602 for now, and uh, hopefully people can get that bug sorted out. Uh, have you used any of these newly released system uh, or GSOS versions, uh, Alex? I, I, I have, I have, but from from my perspective, um, it's it's kind of it's funny because um, 
a lot of people who download software off what what is the Apple Two GS, they kind of just want to they quickly want to play an old game. You know, they might not. Mm-hmm. I, I would call them casual users, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of actually in two minds about actually including um, System Six Point Zero Point Two and Three because. Um, Potentially, you know, running games off those systems, the games might not work anymore. And uh, there was a bit of a discussion on the, uh, the Facebook Apple II enthusiast group about this, and I got I got convinced. So I, I've got them up there, but I I've got to be honest, I kind of still stick to System Six Point Zero One. Um, yeah, just to make sure. Interestingly enough, um, just some quick tests I did with John Brooks Protoss uh, version two point four point one. I updated uh, a local version of of one of my um, uh, sort of thirty two meg drives that self boots, and the cracks we have of Rastan and Pipe Dream don't work with Protoss version two point four point one. So I'm yeah I'm I'm kind of. I kind of need more time to evaluate what has broken and then we might need to find alternative cracks. Um, so I'm kind of, again, of the of the mindset that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But um, I certainly encourage, you know, new efforts into Protoss and, and GSOS and I, I really look forward to see um, to see what's what's going to come next. Yeah, for sure. I like that. Uh, I like the people are doing this at the very least. <laughs> Uh, so actually, Alex, you mentioned earlier in the show uh, this next item. Hybert uh, uh, Albers has uh, recovered some uh, some of his old software that was previously thought lost. Uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, Hubert's um, uh, it's written on his on his website, but he he actually wrote the original jigsaw in about a weekend. So he says. <laughs> And uh, he was able to sell it to Britannica um, Software, and it sold a hundred thousand copies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but he didn't he didn't feel that was particularly reflective of his skill as a programmer. And so he always set about uh, doing Jigsaw Deluxe, or at least an updated version that he hoped that Britannica would then uh, sort of sell on. Uh, but Britannica sort of said, uh, "We we don't need it." And and by that time, they felt the GS market was drying up. Um, and so they, they never decided to uh, release Jigsaw Deluxe. It would have been nice perhaps for Britannica just to, I mean, if they offered any sort of upgrades to j- just offer Jigsaw Deluxe as a free upgrade perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the game itself has a two-player mode now, now and, and many more features to, to sort of, you know, challenge uh, puzzle lovers everywhere. Excellent. Well, we uh, will definitely link to that uh, on his site, and of course on uh, what is the two GS. Um, yeah, we uh, we had uh, we had him on the show uh, fairly recently, and he talked about that how his experience with Jigsaw, the the return on investment was so amazing. You know, for a weekend mm. of work, he you know he made all this money, and uh, then but it seems to have been a bit of a one hit wonder because he then thought, well, okay, I'll do something really really special, and he uh, spent you know many many months working on i think it was uh, laser force uh, was yes. sort of his yes. his opus and then it just didn't do well at all unfortunately uh, which uh, was the fleeting nature of of the market at the time for sure yeah what a shame 
Yeah. Yeah. We've talked to a lot of developers from the era who encountered that where they had, they wrote one, especially in the early 8-bit days, they wrote one word processor, one game, uh, and then, you know, made $2 million and sailed around the world or whatever uh, and spent it all. <laughs> and then when they came back, uh, the market was gone and uh, suddenly software was no longer a one-person thing and it was yeah. a whole different world. <laughs> yeah. So there was, there was a window there for the artiste, I think. <laughs> Uh, all right, uh, Mike uh, helps out with this next one. Looks like Brutal Deluxe has been uh, scanning tapes. Uh, is scanning the right word for tapes? I don't know. <laughs> I think the I think the audio term is ripping. Ah, um, okay, maybe. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, I, I we've talked about this collection a few times before on the show, and it just keeps getting bigger, and it keeps amazing me that they keep finding more tapes to to make copies of because I had no idea this much software was even released on cassette, but. Uh, um, Antoine has added more titles to the uh, cassette collection over at Brutal Deluxe, and they're now they're now up to 653 titles as of one November. So oh, congrats, wow. guys! And oh my goodness, I, yeah, I'm astonished. Mm. I, I literally never saw a piece of real Apple II software on tape. Uh, you know, flop, <laughs> floppy disks just took over immediately, at least where where I was. Uh, so I never saw any of this, and I just yeah, like you said, I'm astonished that that much software came out on tape. Amazing. I think I've got one. I think I've only ever seen one Apple II tape in my life <laughs> in the flesh. Kids these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, this next item. Uh, so it looks like uh, someone has dug up the source code for the 1978 version of uh, DOS. What is this? 3.1 which is incredible, uh, and then managed to get it to build and run. Uh, this is pretty exciting. I haven't watched this video yet. Have you, Mike? Uh, no. No, I, I haven't. This is crazy. Uh, Larry, Larry G, uh, Larry Green. Uh, Larry Green says that I managed to get the June 2nd, 1978 uh, listing donated by Paul Lawton to the DigiBarn and Computer History Museum, assembled and booting on an integer ROM Apple II Plus with a 13-sector disk controller, <laughs> which is amazing. So he, uh, he links to the source code, which we will also link to. And uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, the source code for uh, DOS 3.1. And... Uh, uh, I'm not sure this was never released as far as I know. Uh, I think DOS 3.2 is the first commercial release. Uh, unless I'm, am I mistaken there? I believe, I believe it was 3.1, but there were, this was back when they were, they were releasing, um, you know, updates every couple of months. And as, as we can see from the description here, you know, the, um, um, the one released in June was not compatible with the one released in October. And <laughs> and uh, to make it even more challenging, he's working off of source code that was donated to the DigiBarn and, and Computer History Museum and, and scans. So then you've, you've got this whole uh, regression just to get it back into digital form. And then I'm sure there was some work stitching this together. And yeah, it's, it's wow, guys. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah, DOS three point two certainly had pretty widespread distribution, but uh, yeah, I think three point one has got to be pretty rare. Hmm. Uh, all right, this next item uh, actually is about you, Alex. Uh, so it looks ah. like uh, you've been adding more eight uh, bit on three and a half uh, items to the site. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember how the whole my obsession with <laughs> getting eight bit software and three and a half inch disk started. Um, I know I had um, a couple of uh, Davidson educational programs like Math Blaster Plus um, myself, 
I uh, like the fully boxed copy of that. And I, I sort of always wondered, you know, there must be more of this stuff out there. And as it turns out, it is. And when I uh, went to Tony Diaz's to archive a lot of stuff that he had, he had a, an Apple IIc Plus uh, book, which was kind of evangelizing how much software was already out there for the Apple II. Um, but they also listed specifically all these 8-bit titles on 3.5-inch disc. And... Um, Turns out there was actually a lot of it released, but I think you know around about that time in the late '80s, um, and again with you know people not even cracking stu- uh, educational stuff on five and a quarter inch disc, they certainly weren't doing it much for the three and a half inch disc versions. Um, so not much of it's archived, but I I really love this stuff because it does you know take away the disc swapping, and um, I would imagine three and a half inch disc access is a bit faster and. I mean, I'm always quite keen to, you know, get Apple II software running to the modern equivalent so people will be interested in it. I don't want people to be turned off by having to flip disks or, you know, swap disks, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, Antoine's just, you know, keeping out an eagle eye and, and finding more of this stuff um, from eBay and even other sources. I'm not sure where he's getting all this stuff from, but... Uh, yeah, he always very generously cracks it if it needs to be cracked and then images it and then we get it online to be archived. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, as a fan of the 2C Plus myself, I love that section of your site. I was also amazed how much 8-bit software actually did come out on 3.5 and, a half, and uh, yeah, I've played with a lot of it uh, since then. So uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, the 3.5-inch disc on the in the 8-bit world is a lot of fun because it's just enormous. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. a hard drive. I mean... <laughs> If I had had a three and a half inch drive for my 8-bit Apple II, I mean, I probably, you know, I wouldn't have needed a hard drive ever. Probably, I mean, that was just so much space uh, for for the for that machine. Uh, so yeah, it's fun to play with. Yeah. All right, uh, Mike. Looks like we got some stuff going on with uh, Apple Commander here. Uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, Brendan uh, Robert, who I think he's been on the show uh, in the past. He, um, I think, he's working with um, yeah, Lawless Legends. That I think is is sort of his current focus, but he also developed the uh, Apple Commander, um, which is a a great way to deal with uh, disk images. And he's announced that um, um, this is now part of the um, Maven Central repo. So I guess you can uh, now the idea is that you can build this into your own projects. Is that is that right, Quinn? Uh, yeah, it looks that way. So uh, if you're a Java developer, uh, you have easy access to the features of Apple Commander, uh, which, yeah, which should be uh, pretty handy for anyone developing, uh, you know, software that's sort of re- going to connect in some way to Apple II stuff or be a utility in some way for Apple II. It's nice to use Java because then it's just automatically cross-platform, which is pretty handy. Uh, and uh, in fact, I think related to this, I, I changed this item on you, Mike, because I think your link might have been wrong. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the the note says Brendan Roberts is also looking to modernize uh, ADT Pro. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Your link pointed to Apple Commander, which is Brendan has also mentioned that he wants to modernize um, the interface on ADT Pro. He said uh, in this post on Compsys Apple II, he says the program is fantastic, but now that I'm on a high DPI Windows laptop, it's really hard to use because the window is super tiny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, it would be, yeah. Uh, and apparently the uh, RXTX is not being maintained, so he's looking to do that. This is sort of just uh, um, an announcement of his intentions, um, and he's set up a, 
uh, a GitHub for anyone who wants to check out the work and contribute. There's nothing there um, yet that you can really run, but it's uh, ADT Pro FX is, I think, what it's going to be called. And um, he's thinking maybe CC65 might be a, a good way to go. So look for that in the future. And if you can help out, uh, definitely stop by that link and uh, volunteer. Cool. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I no no offense to Brendan, but if I had one request for Apple Commander, it would be that it not be written in Java. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's handy because it's cross platform, but uh, yeah, it is sort of annoying in a native environment to have this one window that behaves weirdly and is a weird size, and you can't resize it. And <laughs> it just yeah, whenever people mix these platform agnostic languages into native environments, it always it's always, never never a very smooth experience. Well, you know, maybe the um, the Internet Archive can make a, a web version of it. Yeah, that's probably coming. Uh, all right. Uh, VFC Zurich uh, is a thing that's apparently happening right now. Is that right? Yeah, this was uh, – I actually just noticed this on Twitter a couple of days ago. I didn't even know that there was one in Zurich, um, and they were asking for retweets. Um, it, I don't know if this was like a last-minute thing, or, uh, but – um, the only link that I have is to a Google Drive document that's entirely in German, but I do know that it's happening this weekend. So, um, obviously by the time this goes live, it'll be over. Um, and you can check out the, the remains of that at, uh, vcfe.ch. <laughs> the remains of that. Yes. Okay. I'm sure everyone will survive it, but. Hey, I love my colorful metaphors. Stop it. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. This, so this, this next item I have to take because I love it. Um, <laughs> So recently, uh, 4 a.m. Uh, of, uh, you know, Apple II cracking fame, uh, posted a picture of a T-shirt from the 80s. And it's one of these T-shirts that some schlock marketing company probably made to try and appeal to the kids today. Uh, but, you know, it's completely tone deaf. And so it's a shirt uh, with a picture of a pirate and he's stabbing his sword at a floppy disk. And it says at the top, official computer pirate. Um, and below that, it says cracking expert. Uh, and it's like, it's got like six different fonts on it. Somehow there's more fonts than words in this thing. It's, it's an astonishing piece of uh, graphic design nightmare. And uh, so 4am posts a picture of this thing. Uh, and he says, if someone makes this t-shirt, I will buy it and wear it uh, to Kansas Fest. And within hours somebody had <laughs> yeah it was incredible how fast this all happened someone else on twitter scanned it and then someone else on twitter uh vectorized it and then someone else on twitter put it up on zazzle and you can now buy this thing and we will link to it in the show notes and it, it is terrible and amazing and we should all wear this to kfest i think I, I think the design of this is actually based on an ad that ran on the back of a, of a computist magazine the, the, ah. the magazine that had all the crack the cracks for Software that sort of works sometimes, depending on the version that you had. Um, mm. And I, I think they they readjusted the layout, like you know where where mm -hmm. the pirates standing and stuff. But yeah, this is this was a I think a real thing that was being sold uh, <laughs> in the back of this magazine. Now, I imagine after two washings, it fell apart completely. But mm. <laughs> uh, now you can have one on high quality, hundred percent cotton and all that. So run, don't walk. Yes. And the irony of things like this is, while I'm sure nobody bought it at the time, if you found one of these from that period on eBay, it would probably oh, yeah. fetch $500. Easily. It would, it would be just the right amount of worn and it's so cheesy and people yeah, would love that stuff nowadays. We, we should have a contest at Kansas Fest to, to see how many, you know, if we can count up how many people bought and wore that thing to Kansas Fest. Yes. Yeah. 
one because I, I'm I wanna, sure 4am is not going to be the only one. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 And I want to buy one and, and wash it a hundred times with tennis balls, try to <laughs> wear it out and make it look uh, vintage. That would be Well, great. then you can say, yeah, see, I got the original. You guys just got this new thing that showed up on Twitter. Rip offs. Get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. So, uh, Mike, talk to me about what's going on in Finland. Well, I hear it's cold there sometimes. Mm, yes, um, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, our friend Jorma uh, has decided, I guess, to deal with this imaginary cold by uh, uh, starting FinApple, uh, the blog of all things Apple II in Finland. I didn't even know that they were really up in Finland, but they apparently were, and he's he's cataloging all of it. Excellent. Uh, I imagine if you are in Finland, the cold is not very imaginary at all. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. As someone who grew up in Canada, I can uh, I can attest that the cold <laughs> is in fact quite real. Uh, all right. So some uh, some fun things from uh, Hackaday. Not strictly Apple II related, but uh, looks like they are running a 1K programming challenge. Um, and uh, they are saying you can do this on anything from Arduinos to microcontrollers, uh, etc., but this looks like a really great thing to do on your Apple II. And if you do that, you will definitely be the coolest person in this contest. Yeah, they, they specifically mentioned in the notes that it's any platform. And if you scroll down in, into the comments, in fact, uh, there's somebody, Adam Fabio. Um, oh, we know that uh, name. Actually, uh, yeah, Peter Noyes actually um, posted as a 6502 developer. I'm pretty excited about this. And Adam <laughs> responded that uh, a few of us here on the staff doubted any 6502 people would enter. So let's prove them wrong. And uh, so yeah, any any platform, and I imagine the the output of bang for your bit, so to speak, uh, well, uh, from a K of code on a sixty five hundred two is going to be different than, and maybe even more impressive than what it would be on a, a more modern platform. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think most people are probably going to do this contest on a microcontroller, uh, on a, you know an AT Mega or something like that. But the joke will be on them because. Uh, <laughs> In that same 1K, an Apple II can do vastly more interesting and fun things than a microcontroller can. Because, you know, a microcontroller has very minimal I.O., has no video, it has no peripherals. Uh, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Someone who does this on an Apple II is, is probably going to win because you could build quite a, an impressive graphical game or demo, I'm sure, in 1K. Now, as of uh, this recording, the uh, official rules, other than that, I guess, and details haven't been posted yet. So who knows what, if anything, you'll win. But... Um, if you do on a 6502, you'll be cool and the envy of all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should do this on Veronica, because then I will Ooh, participate on a computer and made myself. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> you always got to be a one-upper, Quinn. <laughs> plug, plug, plug. <laughs> uh, yeah, last time I turned Veronica on, it didn't work. So uh, <laughs> I, think I managed to fix it, but uh, yeah, I don't know what... Uh, its days might be numbered. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we have to preserve that right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the chief weakness, I predict, uh, is all of the PCBs. There's no solder mask on them because they're, you know, I etched them in my kitchen. Ah, yes. So the copper is going to oxidize uh, mm -hmm. probably. So I may have to, I could, I could seal them with some spray or something maybe, but. Her life was beautiful, but short. <laughs> exactly. Uh, preserved forever on the blog, though. <laughs> Um, well, moving right along, this is a perfect item for this episode, since we have Alex here on the show. Uh, Jimmy Marr uh, of uh, the Digital Antiquarian, uh, the blog that we managed to mention at least 17 times every episode because it's Because amazing. we love it. Yes, and I'm sure all of our listeners already read it, but uh, his one of his recent posts is uh, History of Neuromancer, and... 
I was uh. actually quite surprised to see this item on there because you know it wasn't it wasn't like a landmark title, uh, you know, in the industry at the time or anything. I don't think it was kind of an obscure game. I mean, I guess it probably did well, but certainly based on a, a, a fairly popular book, but kind of niche uh, at the time. But uh, anyway, uh, William Gibson, my favorite author, uh, Neuromancer, uh, probably my favorite book. And uh, this, by extension, one of my favorite games. And the 2GS version is fantastic. So uh, everyone should definitely play that. And we will link to that, of course, on what is the Apple 2GS. And um I think what's especially great about this, which is not always the case, is that the 2GS version, I think, is the definitive version of this game. You know, it came out on a number of platforms, uh, but uh, this and probably Rastan, uh, the 2GS, is the platform you uh, you want to play it on. Uh, Alex, I, I assume you've played this one? I have. I haven't played it all the way to the end, um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely uh, an enjoyable, uh, but sort of complex game at the same time. It's it's the thing that interested me uh, from an archival point of view is um, there's no credits on it and as it turns out it was Berger Becky who who programmed that mm-hmm. but um, for a while there there didn't seem to be much of a record that uh, that she had coded that herself um, it sort of was I guess you could kind of guess that she would have but um, <laughs> uh, yeah there's just no, no credits on there which I thought was quite strange. Yeah, we, we learned from her uh, keynote at Kansas Fest uh, recently, a couple of years ago, that uh, yeah, she was sort of uncredited or only only mildly or quietly credited for a, a lot of 2GS ports of things. And uh, so I think, yeah, she when she started lift, listing off all the games that she had ported, that she had, a lot of people in the audience were like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was you. You know, it was all these games that, this, that just appeared on the 2GS were very much uh, her efforts. So... Uh, yeah, this one included. Uh, all right. Uh, well, our uh, our friends at uh, Ultimate Apple Two have been busy. They are on uh, Facebook now. Uh, this is pretty exciting, eh, Mike? Yeah, they finally have a, an an official uh, web uh, or Facebook page. Um, yeah. And um, one of the the newest projects that uh, Anthony just posted about actually is um, it looks like they're um, aiming to clone the Idea Two C drive. The that sort of mystical bison that we've talked about here on the show before. Um, they've worked, uh, looks like they've worked with um, Be- uh, Burger Becky to uh, use some of her equipment to at least come up with a proof of concept. They've got some nice photos up there. So um, now I, you know, I don't know if this will ever be a, a, a product that the, the unwashed Apple II masses can buy themselves, but it's neat to, to watch the progress um, as, as they work on it. And they've got um, all their other products their latest uh, products and projects up there as well. They're, you know, Ram, uh, Ram factor clones and uh, gal sets for the Transwarp GS and things like that. So that seems to be the place to go right now. Excellent. Yeah, they've made noises that maybe this idea to see clone will be a real thing. Uh, you know, the, they're certainly further along than I thought they were. Uh, you know, they have real PCBs uh, that are, you know, look pretty much ready to go. So uh, I imagine uh, Burger Becky's probably writing like ROM code and stuff like that for it as well as, uh, you know, maybe drivers or things like that. Because uh, I think she was, if I'm not mistaken, she was involved in the original. I think she said that she wrote the ROM for the original or something. I don't. There's some connection there, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, I might be making that up. But anyway, was that, was uh, that for the foc- for the focus drive? Uh, oh, maybe I might be confusing those. Hmm, I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> all of your hearsay uh, is here. Folks. <laughs> False information. <laughs> yeah. We call this the news section, really. It's just the we make stuff up section. Anyway, 
nice to see Ultimate Apple too uh, on the social medias with the the, the tweet books and the, the the snap faces and things. Uh, moving right along, uh, Computer History Museum is interviewing people. Uh, help me out here, Mike. My Google Doc is cutting this off. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is very uh, professional. <laughs> I can't be bothered to widen this column. You talk. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> can't even double click. <laughs> um, yeah, Computer History Museum has um, established a, a um, growing tradition, I guess, of, of really excellent um Video interviews and sessions with um, industry pioneers and, and famous people that you've probably heard of. And in this case, they talked to Taylor Pullman. And this is particularly interesting, I think, to, to Apple II and three users because Taylor was the Apple II project leader for a long time at Apple. And he worked it and then moved over to the Apple III. And, and now the interview is long, so, so long. It's, it's in two parts and it's four hours. The second interview, I think, is mostly about what he did after um, after he left Apple, which was he went to Forethought and, and they made uh, FileMaker Pro, um, that sort of thing. But the first uh, the first part of it is definitely interesting because he talks less about the technology because he was more of a manager than a than a, an engineer or programmer, and you get a lot of personal anecdotes. And he talked about you know the difference between like uh, the early. Apple computer and and how it was it was sort of this open you know here's this Apple II you pop the lid off and and it's look it's a sandbox go play and and the later machines that kind of started with the Apple III and then to the Lisa and Mac where everything was closed and then they sort of took this attitude that you know we know what you want and we'll tell you what you want to do with your computer and um, he he did tell there's an interesting really fascinating anecdote where. Uh, he talked about. Remember, I don't know if if you if you knew this, but um, uh, you know, Jobs moved the Mac project off to these secret offices, and I guess you had to have like a special thing on your badge even to get into those buildings if you yeah. worked at Apple. And while well, Taylor marched a bunch of their Apple II group over to that building and just kind of walked in, pushed the guard out of the way, and and they got in there, and he, he's describing it, and there's like you know this this marble fountain and huge cubicles, and it's all nice and quiet. And he said, and then what, then I realized. There are two Apple computers, and we're working at the other one, mm-hmm. and uh, that's kind of when when he left. But yeah, there's some really great stuff there. Um, then if you can if you can sit there for a while and um, have the time, I, I highly recommend it. Hmm. Yeah, I think I've heard that story in some other context about yeah the the marching over there and finding out that uh, yeah that it's like a, a palace over there and everyone's li- living uh, living large. <laughs> a lot of people probably left after that. Uh, all right. Well, uh, it's always nice to see uh, user group newsletters get archived because those are definitely among the things that tend to, to get lost forever if nobody uh, takes the time to scan them. So it looks like Washington Apple Pie's uh, complete collection of newsletters is uh, online. Is that right, Mike? Uh, mostly complete. Um, and it's been a couple of years since I was last at, at this website. And at the time, they only had a few issues available. And if I recall, they were like sample issues. And if you wanted the rest, you had to buy a membership to Washington Apple Pie. Um, but it looks like now um, they've got almost all of they've got it's starting from the, the club's beginnings in 1979 all the way up through um, 2009. Um, Many, many more issues are, are available in PDF format for you to, to download and look at. There are um, – this, is, I guess, is mostly um, member contributions and scans. So, like, in 1981 is missing May through December. And 
88, 89, and 90 you're missing entirely, but many years are, are complete. And it's a, it's a nice history of Apple from outside Apple, from the users and the, and the, the groups that were supporting at the time. Nice. Yeah, the user group newsletters are always fun to read because they, uh, yeah, they're very genuine and uh, without all the layers of marketing hype and so on. Yep. All right. Well, that uh, wraps up our news, uh, but it looks like we've got a woos item. There's a long lost segment. Uh, I guess we we (laughs) did record that bumper for it. So why don't you slap that in here, Mike? Yep. Just couldn't stay away. I had to annoy Quinn one more time with the woos. like was and we know you do too it's was news it's woos all right so this is a kickstarter for the us festival 1982 feature-length documentary um which um was a uh us festival was a there were um it happened in 82 and 83 it was a weekend long music festival i, I guess sort of a proto palooza thing um, that was funded mainly by Waz during the time that he had, had left Apple and was kind of trying to find himself and do other things. Um, trying to find things to do with his money. Right, exactly. Well, they found they found lots to do with this money because he. Mm. I think he said later that he lost millions on each mm. one of these. He but did. that wasn't really that wasn't really the point. It wasn't to make money. It was to to have fun and have great concerts, and he was very happy about that. But I think for a while something like this has been in. In some sort of progress, I, I remember seeing s- clips on YouTube of, of like what this documentary would be. Now I don't know if this is the same group of people, uh, but that I don't. The, the one that I'm talking about was a couple of years ago, and I don't think it ever went anywhere. So maybe this is we're trying again, or maybe it's a different group. I don't know. Anyway, as as of uh, this recording, they've got 31 days to go. They're looking for sixty thousand dollars, and they're already up to nineteen thousand one hundred bucks. So. Uh, if you want to see Waz doing other things um, than Apple, then you can check that out if it comes out. All right. Well, that wraps up our Woos segment. Uh, <laughs> Woozy. A, a, a fan favorite. Um, so, uh, <laughs> But I think, not a host favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's your favorite, so that's fine. <laughs> I accept that. Uh, so why don't, we, uh, why don't we roll into our second installment of our new segment, the uh, magazine Flashback. I guess we don't have a bumper for that, do we? We have no bumper. <laughs> All right. Let's just just imagine we had a uh, a lovely British lady saying things here. <laughs> do you want an Australian? Do you want an Australian accent bumper? Ah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next best thing, some Australian guy. <laughs> All right. Plus one. Imagine a brain whose left side is as brilliant as its right. A brain as artistic as it is logical, that can calculate and create. Such a brain exists in the remarkable new Apple II GS. Brilliant graphics, brilliant color, brilliant sound. To help you use both sides of the most personal computer of all, your mind. So uh, this month we're going to talk about uh, Soft Talk Volume 1, Number 2, uh, carrying on from uh, our sequence from last month where we started with the very first episode, or issue, I should say. Uh, so Mike, why don't you get us started here? Yeah, so this is October 1980. Um, this thing went for a dollar. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and this is, I, I think, uh, this cover is sort of indicative of how it's going to go for the rest of the run of Soft Talk. <laughs> the, uh, it, it's well-polished and, and um, well-produced, but whimsical. There's a, a, a man on a beach with uh, a, a, um, 
I'm just going to say an exaggerated smile. And he's a pirate because they're, they're, there's a big article on piracy in this. And uh, they've um, looks like there's an article on VisiCalc. And, uh, oh, of course, the, the, the pirate's chest uh, with all the software spilling out onto the sand because that's where you would use it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see 4AM on the cover. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was active uh, even back then. Uh, and and can I can I, can I just say that people using actual pirates as uh, metaphor images for software pirates has has never been funny. Uh, no, gonna, not even then. I'm just going to throw that out there. But anyway, <laughs> but the cover is very cute. Um, and uh, I will say it does date itself a little bit because there's uh, there's a whole section in this issue uh, on uh, using computers for disabled folks, and they use the word handicapped, which you yes, know, on the really, cover, <laughs> yeah, they, in, in a large print uh, is that word, and we don't really use that word anymore. Uh, but uh, it is a product of its time. I have in my head the South Park member berries going. Remember when you could say handicap and not get in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the, even even this. Early on in the run, it's clear that the um, the staff at Soft Talk was very interested in engaging with their users and getting them involved and making you know this is our, this is everyone's magazine, not just ours. Um, they announced a contest where um, you count the number of apples that appear in the in the magazine, and if you get it right, you could you could win a hundred dollars in goods produced by any advertiser in the issues. So, uh, really going all out here. Yeah, well, and to clarify, so this contest is sort of mind-boggling. I'd really love to know if anybody won it or, or what the answer yeah. was because they want you to count every picture of an apple, uh, every apple logo, every actual real edible apple, uh, and every instance of the word apple, uh, either the noun or the proper name, uh, anywhere in the magazine. Um, wow. So, and th- I mean, there's I counted 30 on that page, I think. So <laughs> uh, I don't know what the total is, but uh, I'd be very curious to see if anyone got it. I guess it's one of those things like counting the jelly beans in the jar. No one's ever going to get the exact number because it's uh, very, very large and specific. Right. But <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, fun, fun contest. Uh, and, uh, the, the next thing that struck me here is, uh, this is the first appearance of assembly lines. So, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. The, um, the long running and ultimately very popular, uh, series of articles by Roger Wagner, uh, on how to learn assembly programming. In fact, it was so popular that Chris Torrance recently republished, uh, all the articles in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that book is largely responsible for me getting back into Apple II development. It's it's so well written, like it's such a great uh, reintroduction to Apple II assembly language uh, that uh, heartily recommended for anyone who wants to do that. Yeah, well, and there were tons of of assembly language books um, out at the time, and and I think what made it stand, what made Roger's work stand apart was how how well he made uh, complex topics and and uh, ideas simply understood and and a lot of those books failed to do that and you'd open this thing up and the first three chapters were on binary math i'm like oh <laughs> yeah. are you kidding me throw that away you know that's never going to happen so yeah a lot of people who've suffered through a computer science education feel that everyone else should learn it that way too uh if you know <laughs> i suffered learning you know carnal maps so you're going to do it too that's uh, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and roger also doesn't never shied away from the hard topics like you know here's high-res graphics on the apple II. it's horrible but here's how you do it <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he presents it in a very understandable way and you know we should mention that uh the assembly lines book uh the reissue by chris torrance is 
Also partially responsible for uh, Kevin Savitz's win at uh, Kansas Fest because he literally sat down and read that book and then wrote his first assembly language game on the Apple II uh, and won <laughs> Kansas Fest with it. So, uh, you know, that's that's not nothing. Man, we, we got to change the rules there. We can't have Atari people winning Apple contests. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. But every time a podcast mentions uh, Kevin Savitz, uh, an angel gets its wings. So uh, we, we <laughs> Or something horrible. Yeah, we've covered that at least for the episode. Uh, and we would be remiss, of course, if we didn't mention the, ne- the second major news item in this issue, which is, of course, Apple's IPO is announced. Mm. Uh, I'm really, really sad that I was six years old at the time and would not have known what an IPO was uh, and could have <laughs> bought some of that stock and would now uh, be on a beach somewhere and not have to talk to you people. Uh, what, what might have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So this was all timed uh, very carefully. The The Apple III was introduced uh, earlier that year and the, the units were supposed to start shipping right before the IPO because, you know, that's the big business, their new business computer that was going to take over the corporate desktop right in time for you to buy all this stock. And of course, it didn't really work out that way, but the stock ended up in the long run doing very, very well, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that Apple computer, they they did all right. Turns out, <laughs> the um, there is one other item here in the news speak section um, where um, Tom Whitney, one of the Apple managers, is talking about how basically every. Uh, System manufactured after January 1981 is now going to have to meet the new FCC rules, which was a huge deal back then because, mm-hmm. um, you know, people were making computers and they were interfering with television and, and the FCC said, well, government has to get involved in this. So they rewrote all the rules and uh, got very expensive for a lot of the makers. I think uh, Tandy, in fact, discontinued a couple of lines of their early uh, home computers entirely because it was just too expensive to re-architect them. Fortunately, uh, Apple didn't have that problem, but um, – yeah, so that was looming on the horizon for the industry. Yeah, Apple managed to get away with a lot uh, in this regard, <laughs> and I never figured out exactly how they did that. I mean, you know, Atari was basically forced to build their computer as a 600-pound lead block, and the Apple II managed to get away with wrapping the RF modulator with a piece of tin. Uh, not really sure how they managed that. I mean, it was the Apple II was certainly not compliant in terms of uh, electromagnetic uh, emissions. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how they managed that. Better lawyers than Atari, maybe. And if you, uh, if you've, or one of those people that's collected a bunch of different Apple II Pluses and things like that, and you open them up, you can probably see evidence of of different things that they were trying. You know, there's some yeah. of them have RFI paint, and some of them have mm-hmm. those extra strips, and mm-hmm. some of them have different RFI paint, and some of them have <laughs> different leads on the motherboard. You know, so and none of it really worked. <laughs> right. <laughs> Set up a ham radio next to your Apple II and uh, listen to the excitement. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, you know, I, I have to ask Alex, did you ever have any Apple II stock? Or I mean, Apple stock? I, I wanted to buy stock in 1996 mm. when that they were the on time. the ropes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I was a student and um, I had no idea how you would go about buying stock. And to be honest, I don't even know how you do it now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, back then I had no idea. I assumed you needed a stockbroker or something like that. And I certainly didn't have one of those. But I, let's just say if I put the money I wanted to put into Apple at that point, I probably wouldn't need to work now. Hmm. <laughs> You'd on the island next to the one Quinn was on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen, there's a, there's a spreadsheet somewhere on the interwebs um, where for all the money you've paid for Apple machine over these years, if you oh, yeah. put it into <laughs> Apple stock instead, 
how much money you would have made from that instead. <laughs> Interesting. It's it's quite sobering. <laughs> yeah, it's even worse knowing that because Apple was in such dire straits at the time, hey, even if they went out of business and you bought the stock, you didn't really lose that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the, in the 90s there, Apple was in such bad shape that I don't know if anybody would have thought it was a good idea to buy that stock anyway, honestly. I mean, I, who could have predicted, you know, the iPhone and the iPod and everything else? But uh, yeah, anyway, so it uh, looks like next up we've got uh, a fairly extensive article on uh, personal software and uh, how they're structuring their management and so on. And uh, it's this article I found interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because personal software so that the articles are soon very optimistic very positive VisiCalc's doing very well it's still you know a year in it's top of the charts uh and this was pretty much it for them uh, <laughs> uh despite the uh lofty uh tone of this article uh how they're the elaborate management structures and so on they're engaged in how they're modeling their company after apple in many ways uh yeah they never really did much after this um but I will say that the this article has many, many, many fonts in it, which I found amusing. Uh, I think that uh, as, as excellent as the soft talk production values are, even this early, it uh, looks like maybe they got a little carried away with the typefaces in this particular article. Yeah, the, the subtitle is a smooth sailing on NECs, which is particularly ironic considering what happened when the Lotus One Two Three Juggernaut was released and yeah. pretty much crushed them and everybody else in the industry. And instead of instead of coming up with better products to compete, the uh, personal software just turned on its uh, on VisiCalc Incorporated, which was the company they had set up to distribute the software they were writing, and it got very ugly. And yeah, it was yeah just awful. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Moving right along. Uh, what's the next There's item? that word. <laughs> that word? Handy, handicap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere in this article or in this <laughs> issue. We just sort of have to read it in an 80s mindset and know they, they, they meant well. Hey, what is this Eaton 7000 personal computer printer? That looks pretty cool. I want one of those. <sighs> yeah, it's a thermal receipt. Like a printer. It is a thermal receipt printer, and I don't think you want one. Uh, <laughs> but it, it prints at 1.2 lines or 1.25 lines a second. Yeah, it turns out those things are really useless, but they were <laughs> they were inexpensive, so a lot of people bought them. Anyway, uh, so the next uh, the next article that caught my eye was uh, it was sort of an interview with a with a guy about a product, but it's more about the guy than the product. So he's, <laughs> he's telling the story of his, how he couldn't afford a floppy drive. And so he got this cassette drive and the cassette drive was terrible because cassette tapes are terrible. And so he came up with this device. And unfortunately, they never really explain what the device does. Uh, it's called the Cassette Master. And it looks like, uh, I don't know, it's a little metal box about the size of a couple of decks of cards. And it's got what looks like a, a meter on it. So my guess is that this thing is like a, a leveler or um, maybe even just a level meter, or I don't know if it's doing some kind of active leveling uh, to sort of steady out the cassette signals just to improve the reliability of, of reading and writing to cassettes. Um, anyway, uh, it seems that, uh, again, the, uh, the early optimism of the time, uh, he developed a prototype and he brought it to a company and they were like, this thing is amazing. We want it. Go, go make a thousand and we'll sell them for you. And he went off and made 10. And he was making them by hand, and so it took forever, and he gave up with that. And then he went to get funding, and so the article ends with how excited he is to go and get funding, and then that never happened. So uh, as far as I know, only 10 of these things exist, and if anyone has one, it is probably worth a fortune because it's fascinating. 
So as as peripherals go, this thing has got to be among the rarest uh, for the Apple II because, yeah, here it is in print that only 10 were ever made. Uh, so no doubt Paul Hegstrom has two in box. But uh, <laughs> aside from that... And I've the manuals and the source code. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, neat thing. If anyone ever sees one, let us know. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of piracy, the cover article is next. Uh, what did you think of this one, Mike? Um, I, I love these articles uh, because you know typically they'll they'll start out talking to the to the software developers who are appropriately outraged. <laughs> yeah. they'll, then they'll get some anonymous sixteen year old kid that yeah screw the man I'm taking the stuff anyway. <laughs> you know, uh, um, and these these articles these kind of articles were all over the, these magazines and in, in back then and and it didn't help that Computist was out there sort of encouraging it without really actively encouraging it and they were there were uh, i think locksmith and edd and back it up were starting to show up on the market at this time and there was an argument among the um, publishers about whether they should run ads for bit copy software because apparently all it did was help people pirate and there were letters from editors to other editors and yeah it was uh, <laughs> I, I love this stuff i really do it's it's high drama for apple II fans Yes. Well, and as we learned recently from a, uh, a talk at uh, Kansas Fest uh, by uh, Mark Pilgrim, uh, Locksmith was actually playing both sides. Uh, they were oh, selling yeah. <laughs> copy protection to software houses and then selling the software to consumers to break it, which uh, I find hysterical. Uh, they were uh, actively creating their own market. But uh, apparently they uh, they they were uh, they had serialized each copy of Locksmith so that when you made a copy it was marked and they could figure out you know who supposedly they could I assume sell that information to the publishers that hey, he took your stuff not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the one that really sticks out for me in this article is is what I've come to call the pirate math that every such article always does and it's completely wrong which is yeah. that uh, they, they do the math well you know the average person has X number of pieces of pirated software so times the cost of that software times the number of people you know uh, and the number they come up with is a million dollars has been siphoned uh, quote siphoned out of the software industry uh, which of course is nonsense because you know the, the data shows and has since shown people have looked at this that all of that pirated stuff you know the vast vast majority if not all of it is stuff that people would not have bought if they weren't able to copy it. So it isn't, right, lo it isn't lost sales. Uh, it actually ends up just being uh, a positive marketing effect because people are, are seeing the software who otherwise never would have. It's the same thing that the RIAA did in the late 90s and the MPAA is doing now that, that every pirated copy is a lost sale. And it's yeah. nonsense. Yeah, I love that they, they even go out of their way to, to attack user groups in this article saying that basically <laughs> that you know the, these user groups are actually just used to, to pirate software. Everybody gets together and it's a pirate party. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I will say, though, uh, in my youth, I participated in many computer programming competitions. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was an official thing. And we had timed competitions. And there was a creative competition where you had a presentation and you presented software that you'd built. And, you know, it was all very on the level. Uh, but everybody participated in it for the free time that they gave you during the day to share software. Uh, oh, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I just love <laughs> yeah. the way they were attacking it here. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, uh, it's just, you know, user groups weren't all that. But yeah, I'm just saying programming competitions were, were definitely about that. At least at least ours were. You know, this is a case of the law being 20 years behind technology. And this new thing is happening. And we feel like, some, you know, we're losing out. What do we do? The law doesn't protect us. And there's a lot of jumping around and hand-waving and not a lot of answers. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've talked a lot about piracy on this episode. Uh, Alex, I don't know if we've ever actually asked you, did you did you pirate a lot of software? Are you guilty? I I kind of didn't actually. Well, it depends. Um sort of uh, like I mentioned in I grew up in a town called Newcastle. Was didn't know anyone with an Apple II GS, but I did know people with 8-bit Apple IIs and certainly copied <laughs> um 8-bit 2 stuff games especially. Um, but in terms of 2GS stuff, I was pretty legit until I got a modem. <laughs> <laughs> and that was 1992. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was quite legit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably most people. Uh, they were fairly legit till you get a modem. Uh, once it gets yeah. easy enough to pirate, <laughs> then suddenly you find yourself doing it more and more. <laughs> yeah, I, I was amazed just um, what else was out there. Because um, in Australia, we... Um, uh, there was for some uh, software distribution companies in the US, there was no local distributor in Australia. So mm-hmm. some titles were just really hard to get hold of, mm-hmm. full stop. Yeah, there was some of that in Canada as well, where there was a lot of software that we just couldn't get. Uh, so, you know, pirating was the only way to get it. I mean, not that that excuses it and not that we didn't also pirate everything that was available, but uh, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, in our defense, uh, a lot of that stuff wasn't available. Yeah, in Canada. It's a gateway drug. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, were, we were archivists, honest. <laughs> That's right. Years ahead. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. So next up, uh, we've got a list, uh, the top selling, the list of 30 top selling pieces of software. And uh, what I loved about this is, you know, we interviewed Bill Budge recently on the show. And at this point in history, what, what did you say the date was, Mike? 1980? Yeah, this is October 80. October 1980. Uh, Bill Budge has three uh, software packages in the top 30 sales for Apple II. So BudgeCo is doing pretty good at this point. And uh, his, the, the number three is one that I don't think I had heard of. I don't think he mentioned it in our interview, something called Space Album. Uh, do you know what that is, Mike? I had no idea what that was. I think that's a collection, uh, if I recall, of, of four different um, games that, that he had put together that um, weren't, you know, I, I think enough to be considered full games that you could sell separately. Um, there were definitely, there were, there were early works of his and um, it was, I was actually reading a, a different user group newsletter recently where they were reviewing it and talking about how, what, you know, it's genius and, and what a great uh, job he had done even, even then. So, uh, you know, this is everything, Build, touch, turn to gold for good reason. It was good. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. And there was the because the, the next one down a little further down the list is uh, Bill Budge's trilogy. They call it. So I guess that's probably something similar. It was three games that that he had packaged up. I guess. I think wasn't the trilogy the the, the three pinball things that he did. Could be. Uh, this, is this isn't? I think this is too early though for oh yeah maybe for so. Raster Blaster and all that. Uh, but then um, the, the last one towards the bottom is the uh, 3D graphics library that he wrote that we did talk to him about. Uh, so uh, uh, nice to see that on there. I didn't realize it had uh, sold so well. I've, I've actually got to, I've actually got uh, two copies of Space Album uh, oh, really? fully in in their bags. Yeah, wow. I, I I barely have any of the you know really early Apple II stuff, but. Um, yeah, I got uh, donated a whole bunch of stuff from a from a guy in Melbourne who uh, sort of just wanted to whittle down his collection, and yeah, I got two bag full baggy copies in mint condition of Space Album. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I saw on eBay they go pretty high, but I 
Kansai, I want to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would hang on to those. I've yeah, I've certainly yeah. never seen one. That's that's really cool that a couple of them made it all the way to Australia. I wonder. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I bet uh, you should tweet at Bill Budge. I bet he'd like to know that because uh, uh, I doubt he's aware that uh, any of them made it to Australia unless he personally mailed yeah. them out there. Yeah, cool. So, space album was uh, Death Star, Solar Shootout, Asteroids, and Tail Gunner. And, um, yeah, it doesn't, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, disc image listing here on the, the archive, but I don't see what the three games were. Oh, uh, the trilogy was Night Driver, Pinball, and Tranquility Base. Ah, okay, cool. Mm. Very cool. Uh, all right. Uh, so the last time I wanted to call out was, uh, actually the very last page. There's a full page ad for, uh, automated, uh, simulations, uh, the, uh, company that made, uh, Temple of Apshe and, uh, why the reason I liked this is that uh, so I we we bought Temple of Apshe for our Ape at Apple II and uh, it was one of the few games we did buy uh, in the store and I I even remember distinctly the store that we bought it in I have a very vivid memory of it it may have been the first game actually that we ever bought and uh, uh, but what's fantastic about this ad is that there are no screenshots so you know it's it's hard to even imagine buying a computer game today without seeing what it looks like but you know the, this full-page ad lists several complex, elaborate RPGs, and it lists various statistics about them that are supposed to sell you how many magic items there are, you know, this sort of thing, but no screenshots. And so you have no idea, none whatsoever, what these games look like. Are they first-person? Are they third-person? Are they top-down? Are they tile-based? You have no idea. Is it a text adventure? You don't know. So uh, I, I find it fascinating that people were paying, you know, $30, $40, for these games uh, based on these ads where you literally have no idea what they look like. Uh, that's mind-boggling, I think, to a modern gamer. Yeah, I think there's there's sort of a level of understanding there that the graphics are not going to be good, and I'm going to have to use my imagination for <laughs> some of this at least. <laughs> yeah, and I can't be too disappointed if it's nothing but text and you know broken English and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I mean, I was I guess the leading edge of the generation that really cared about graphics, and so I remember going to computer stores and looking at software and being really annoyed if they didn't have Apple II screenshots on the mm-hmm. box. Yep. That drove me crazy because I really did care what the game looked like. And that was a lot of it. And a lot of games, you know, I bought uh, Bard's Tale uh, in the store and uh, a couple, I bought Wasteland in the store and a couple of others. And I bought them largely based on the screenshots. So uh, what really got me were the Apple II titles. There, were a few, there weren't many of them, but there were a few that it was, it was an Apple II game, but it had PC graphics on the back. And oh. I had to remind myself to check and make sure a screenshot from Apple yeah. II, not Commodore 64. Yeah, it was always the Commodore 64 version because, of course, it was always the best looking one, if we're being yeah. honest. And uh, uh, yeah, that drove me crazy when they only had Commodore screenshots on the box. <laughs> Even even some Apple II game reviews in Insider and A Plus seem to use screenshots from other platforms, mm-hmm. which is yeah disappointing when you finally got your whole your hands on the on the Apple II version. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I think there were some two GS games that had non two GS screenshots on the box too, which also drove me crazy uh, because yeah, that's a platform where it's all about the the graphics. So uh, yeah, and the ports were so rare that it was even more frustrating when you know you didn't know what, didn't know what it looked like. I think they, they often use the Amiga screenshots in uh, 2GS games because it was the, probably the closest port. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like it would have killed them to take a <laughs> screenshot of the 2GS version. <laughs> Not that hard. Uh, uh, well, that's all I had for this issue, Mike. Did I did we skip over anything you wanted to call out? 
Not anything big. A uh, couple little notes here. Um, just on, going back to the bestsellers list thing, they, uh, there's a mention of this um, early fragmentation of the game market and it's it's uh, the gaming uh, industry. And it's funny because um, they're talking about like there's this group of games and they all look exactly the same. It's Super Invader, Space Invaders, Cosmo Missions, Stellar Invaders. And, um, and I was trying to remember back, you know, when, when I would get games get those like the the file based game discs that had like mm-hmm. six copies or six <laughs> games you know that had been had been ripped and turned into to be runnable files and you know loading one of these up and and like oh I saw that game on this disc called yeah. that you know yeah. I can delete that and yeah yeah there was those discs always in my world those discs always had a copy of Lady Tut and Gobbler on them yes <laughs> and Sabotage <laughs> I think I had I'm 68 sure was, copies of Sabotage <laughs> that was a rule I think you had to have yeah. that <laughs> yeah. um, and the other thing was um, we had um, we had uh, Paul Lutis on a while back and, and talked to talk about Apple Rider uh, and there's a note here um, in the list and he talked about this other program called Easy Rider I think Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was he he claimed was just a ripoff of his program, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, a note here on the list that Easy Writer uh, knocked Apple Writer off the top of the best selling list. Oh no! Um, <laughs> just I hope he didn't see that because he he seems to seems to get hot under the collar sometimes. So <laughs> I thought that was, that was kind of a funny side note, and but that's that's really all I had. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a long episode, uh, yeah. but uh, it's been a good one. <laughs> I really enjoyed having you on here, Alex. Uh, any closing thoughts? Anything you want to say about your site or anything like that? Oh, well, it's it's certainly been my pleasure to be on the show. Um, yeah, I sort of didn't realize sort of how much work sort of involved in preparing it and everything. And um, well, that's because uh, we're not, incompetent. Not, not, yeah, yeah, not for me, but for <laughs> you guys. You know, you 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 really run a tight ship. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, all I can say is, you know, uh, look through your collections and, and check out my site and any other sites that actually have lists of software that we know for sure have never been archived. So, yeah, just check through your collections and, and see if you can archive it and it will not be lost forever. Oh, so are you are you interested in this copy of Ultima 6 I have for the 2GS here? I just, I've <laughs> oh, been using it as a coaster. I don't know. Mildly interested, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, if I get around to it, I'll, 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 I'll scan it. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, uh, Alex, we'll look forward to seeing your coffee table book. Um, mm. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again this month. I think either next month or January, depending on schedules, we're probably looking at doing our annual year-end roundtable. And uh, until then, we'll uh, see you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.